get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, saver retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, I'm Dan for Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers, here to share the easiest way to buy tires. Come to Dobbs. With the best tire brands and the biggest inventory, you'll get your tires the same day at the lowest price, guaranteed. Next time you need tires, get into Dobbs. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Interesting. It'll be great to to have all six guys back uh, to to kind of gel where the role is, where the, their minutes are, um, and I'm I'm guessing that Kruger will obviously uh, play more offensive minutes, but. At the same time, he's produced and, and did a great job for us uh, with Kruger out. So yesterday I said, I think it's going to be Tyler Bozak that's going to return for the Blues today because obviously the Blues don't want to lose that fourth round pick that they have valued so much that they could potentially end up losing if Logan Brown plays in one more game. Well, uh, going to lose that bet with our friend Alex Ferrario. That's why he's the hockey guy. I'm not. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Blues back in action tonight in Boston against the Bruins, and it appears that Tory Krug is indeed going to be in the lineup for your St. Louis Blues tonight. Alex, what's it mean for him? I, I, it means a lot for the Blues to get him back and know that you're maybe a game away from being back to full strength with your roster. If Bozak doesn't play tonight, I would imagine he'll probably try and get back in against Buffalo, but I mean, you've played one and a half games with Tory Krug and Nick Letty on the ice, so you haven't even been able to see those two play together in your top four and the whole reason you went out to get Nick Letty was because he played like Tory Krug he was able to get the pucks out of the zone he was a power play guy for you he created offense and he's done all of that but now you're putting Tory Krug back into the system in this one tonight and frankly I'm really interested to see how they do because I don't think this benefits the defense as much as I think this benefits the offense getting Tory Krug back because you got another guy in the lineup who's really good at getting the pucks out of the zone and however they're going to mix and match these pairings, whether they keep Letty and Falk together and they put Krug with Pareko, or they go back to Old Faithful and put Krug and Falk and put Letty with Pareko. But regardless, four guys who are going to be playing close to 20 minutes tonight are going to be very good at getting the puck out of their zone. And I think that's critical for this offense. Yeah, and we've talked all along about how this team no longer has a defensive identity. And Tory Krug is part of this transformation. And I think tonight... For the first time, really, because now Nick Letty's actually been acclimated to the Blues system. Right. We're to see what it looks like with both of them out there as defensemen for the Blues. And, man, I, I was listening to the morning show earlier today, and we both had the same take yesterday. But they asked Darren Pang, hey, can the Blues win the Stanley Cup? And he said, why not? Why, why can't they? And we looked through some of the numbers earlier today, and we talked about this yesterday with their five-on-five goal production. And so you have a decent idea of it. And the Blues right now are fourth 
and goals scored per game. They're at 3.65 goals per game. Calgary's at 3.5. Edmonton, who has all of this star power, is at 3.4. The Tampa Bay Lightning, who everybody came into the year saying they're there's no way anybody beats them. 3.3 goals per game on average. The Pittsburgh Penguins, 3.2. Vegas Golden Knights, 3.1. The team you're playing tonight in Boston, 3.1. The Blues are one of the best goal-scoring teams in the league this year. And oh, by the way, you flip it around. Do you know they're 10th right now in goals allowed per game? If you had given some of the analysis of the team this year, if you had told me 72 games into the season, the Blues are going to be top 10 in both goals for and goals against, I would think the conversation around the Blues would be vastly different from what it actually is right now here in St. Louis. And so you look at kind of projecting this thing forward, especially tonight with them taking on the Bruins. Why not the Blues, man? Why not? Seriously, you, you look at the path that they're going to have to take. It's going to be a gauntlet. It's going to be unbelievably difficult to be able to come out of the West. But that's also the case for Colorado. It's also the case for Calgary. Or if you like Vegas, as they're kind of going through this little uh, stretch right now, everybody has the same path. And yeah, it's going to be tough. But man, given what they have right now and given the talent that is now making its way back onto the ice, I'm fascinated to see what they look like in this last 10 games of the season. I love Darren Pang's answer because, I mean, we talked about this yesterday. Why, If we're going to be talking about Colorado and Calgary, you have to be talking about the Blues. I mean, the Blues are three points behind the Calgary Flames right now. And after you just went through all of those numbers with that, PK, I mean, think of the teams that they're sitting in front of when it comes to just goals allowed as a team. Now, you mentioned 10th, but like they've allowed lesser, fewer, less, leaster, fewer, fewer, leaster, leaster. That's got to be a word, right? (laughs) They've allowed fewer goals than the Washington Capitals, the Nashville Predators, the Florida Panthers, I mean, these are all teams that people look Vegas, at. Vegas, Minnesota, Edmonton. Like they scored more teams. goals than Minnesota, Calgary, Edmonton, Carolina, Pittsburgh, Tampa, Washington. All of those teams have been brought up as, oh, well, they could win a Stanley Cup this year. And I, I just think it's really fascinating that the Blues continue to kind of fly under the radar because not here we're obviously talking about it but turn on nhl network turn on sportsnet listen to sirius xm nhl people are talking about calgary minnesota a lot of people are talking about edmonton who's playing very well colorado's the clear-cut favorite i think this is where the blues benefit the most to where they just go about their business day to day and now that they've tightened some things up on d that was their biggest issue for couple of months january february their goaltending has been superb we already know their offense so darren got the he's got a great answer why not the blues so now you look at what it's going to be tonight and i'm fascinated to see how they end up pairing these guys together on the blue line here's what craig berube said yesterday when asked if he's going to keep nick letty with justin falk with tory krug returning to the lineup yeah it's a good problem to have i think that uh, you're going to see a little mix and match in here going on and see uh, where guys fit in in game even too yeah or even at the start and we'll just maybe make switches but we'll see how it goes so we've seen a lot of this right the Blues will play the matchups in game. There will probably be a moment tonight where you see Marco Scandella with Colton Pareko. And maybe that's going to drive you insane as a Blues fan. It shouldn't because he's played well the last couple of games. He looks like the Marco Scandella from 2020. Yeah. He looks like when that he was first guy right now. Yep. Yeah. The, the reason why they re-signed him and felt good about it at the time is why they're now going to potentially play him with Colton Pareko 
in-game at some point, probably in the third period when they've got those defensive zone situations. Absolutely. I think you're going to see some of Justin Falk with Tory Krug, especially late in game if they need some offense to be created. I think you might see Nick Letty at times on that third pairing along with Robert Bortuzzo, and that's not a shot against Nick Letty. It's just a reality of what the defensive pairings could potentially look like. What do you think they start with tonight, though, Alex? I, If I were to... To guess, I would say they keep Letty and Falk together because you've just been playing really well. And Letty and Pareko really haven't played much together other than the first couple of games when they were trying to figure out who can fill Krug's spot. So if it were me, I'd start with Letty and Falk and see what Krug and Pareko can do together. But as soon as that doesn't look right, I'm going to flip Krug and Letty. I'm going to keep Scandell on that third pairing to play with Robert Bortuzzo, but he's going to be getting the top shorthanded minutes when there's a penalty kill. And in the third period, if I'm up by a goal, I'm probably going to, to knuckle down and go Scandella and Pareko because that's kind of a, for better or for worse, a shutdown pair for this team when you absolutely need them to. But in all reality, you got six guys that can play at any moment for you, which is a good thing to have because you're not having to shorten the bench in the third period and waste guys' energy levels. And the nice thing is that the Blues have the best defenseman in the NHL right now. They do. Uh, yeah, I've heard something about Kale that. Kale McCarr? Roman Yossi? Buddy. Yeah, ma'am. We got to talk about this. So yesterday, the St. Louis Blues on Twitter, and I quote, who's the best defenseman in the NHL? At Ferrario 101 ESPN explains why he thinks it's Colton Pareko. <laughs> Good God. Man. In the newest episode of the Last Minute Blues podcast, presented <laughs> by, and huge thanks to them, Together Credit Union. Yeah, I'm sure Together Credit Union loved their mentions on social media last night. This has 35,000 views. Hey, hey, where were you at, Ryder? <laughs> 19 retweets, 20 quote tweets, and about 250 likes. Guys, I think I was clickbaited last night. I think I was clickbaited by happened? the blues. What happened here? Well, because I, 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 I know yesterday on our show, you said Justin Falk is the blues number one defenseman. Right. And then later on that night, I see this and I'm like, wait, did he say something that was like a super hot take that I just totally missed during the show? Yeah. So I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm going to court right now with this. So let me, let me produce to you guys. Exhibit a, I asked Jamie on our pregame Saturday. I said, who is the number one defenseman on this Blues team? Who do you guys think the number one defenseman is? I think uh, it's Justin Falk. Uh, I would have said Pareko. And see, that's what's fascinating. I would have said Pareko as well. If you look at the numbers from February 27th up until now, the plus minus, which I know some people hate it, some people love it, he's the best defenseman in the National Hockey League in terms of plus minus <sighs> since February 27th. Stop it there, T-Bone. What, what did I say? He's the best defenseman, defenseman in the National Hockey League in terms of plus minus. The plus minus, which I know some people hate it, some people love it. He's the best defenseman in the National Hockey Keep League. Keep it going, T-Bone. Plus minus oh, since wow. February 27th. That's a number one defenseman. Stop it there! Not- Stop it right there! I heard he's the best defenseman. I never, I never said that he was the best defenseman in the National Hockey League. I gave you stats that said he, since February 27th, in terms of plus minus, which is a stat, is one of the best the best defenseman in the National Hockey League. I didn't say all season. I didn't say from start to finish. I said from February 27th, if you like the plus minus ratio. But then I followed that up by he's playing like a number one defenseman. I think I was clickbaited by the Blues. I don't think they listened to my podcast. And I apologized to Donnie and Jeff already. And I said, sorry, you're getting bad publicity on this one now because 
All I said was he's playing like a number one defenseman. Can I get into some other responses to this? Is this like is this like the mean tweet segment on Jimmy Kimmel? Man, I cried a lot last night. I know you did. I cried a lot. When you Here we go. Mean tweets music. Oh. Oh man, this 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 hits home, man. All right, I cried Here's a lot a few in the car. We got to go through this quick because Dayton Moore, the Royals' president of baseball operations, is about to be on the line. Oh god, this is gonna be really weird. From Jason Stock on Twitter. Yeah. Maybe the most overrated defenseman in the NHL. You're gonna really sit here and tell me you'd rather have him than Kale McCarr? From Jason, J-A-Y-S-Y-N. Oh, that's a good name. Best in the NHL? I want whatever Alex Ferrario is smoking. He's drinking, not smoking. From Bobby Boy 058. Oh, okay. Bobby Boy 058. I like this guy. My God. No way. G-A-W-D. Not even close, Ferrario. Okay. From Jack Drexel. What an all-time homer take. He's not even the best defenseman on his own team. Okay. And one of my personal favorites. From Patty Boy Slim. I like that one. Are you even watching the games, Ferrario? My God. My God. Alex Ferrario had a bad day. Dayton Moore, the Royals president of baseball operations and 2015 World Series champion. Very happy to have him. He joins us next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kylie. We are very happy to be joined by Dayton Moore, the Royals president of baseball operations, the 2015 World Series champion. He joins us via the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line. Dayton, I know you're an unbelievably busy man. Thank you so much for spending a little bit of time t- uh, today with us. How are you doing? Great. Well, thanks for having me. Absolutely. We're thrilled to have you. So I, I want to go back in the way back machine, if you don't mind, because in this series against the Cardinals, it's expected at least that tomorrow you're going to be going up against Adam Wainwright. And you were a part of the Braves organization, if I'm not mistaken, back when Waino was an amateur and that he was being scouted and then ultimately drafted by the Braves. What do you remember about the young Adam Wainwright that you potentially scouted early on? Well, he hasn't changed. I can tell you that uh, we we've remained in contact uh, to this day. I root for him. I'm proud of him. I think he represents uh, so much as that what that's good about our game, uh, and uh, just really really proud of him. But uh, no, Rob English and I, who was our area scouting supervisor uh, at the time in Georgia, spent two days and. Um, in uh, Adam's home uh, with his brother and his, his wonderful mother, and and we worked hard to to get a deal done and and make him a brave. And uh, it was uh, it was an enjoyable experience at that time. And and you know you, you know you know when you draft a player, you're never a hundred percent sure that they're going to make it to the major leagues or not. Um, but uh, when you sit in their home and you go through the process, the negotiations process. You, you get a, a much clearer picture of what this individual's like, um, you know, who they are. Uh, you're, you're facing, uh, you know, uh, difference of opinion at times uh, for the very first time. And uh, we knew sitting in that home and coming out of that negotiations that this, this guy's character, uh, his strength, his determination, his personality, 
uh, was even better than we thought. And we had such a, a great comfort level that he was going to go on and, and be a major leaguer. You can't predict the type of career that he's had. Uh, in my mind, he's a Hall of Famer. And uh, But above that, he's, he's a Hall of Fame dad. He's a Hall of Fame husband. I mean, I can't, I can't say enough about Adam Wainwright. Uh, Dayton, since we're on the topic of scouting another Cardinal uh, Albert Pujols. I'm sure you were a part of the organization during that time scouting Albert Pujols. What do you remember about those years leading up to it? Because obviously so many people missed out. It was 13th round, I believe he was taken in. You know, I actually saw Albert Pujols. Uh, we were there to, I was with the Braves, obviously. We were there to see a pitcher. I can't remember who it was, and I can't remember who what the matchup was, but uh, they had several guys on that team, that Maplewood's team, that, you know, big, strong, kind of, you know, power-hitting type guys, and, and I remember him. Um, you know, he had he had some raw power there. He, he wasn't very athletic. Um, he, he couldn't, he, he wasn't a, a top pick, really, at the time, but yeah, that's where it goes back to, um, you know, your area scouting supervisors, knowing the makeup of the player, the determination of the player. And, and so what we know now about Albert Pujols, I mean, he was a, a can't-miss type uh, talent when it comes to the mind, uh, the, the, the determination, uh, the toughness, and the grit that it takes to become a major league player, and he is—he's earned that. Another guy who's obviously, you know, a first ballot Hall of Fame guy, and a, and again, just a, a a really good person as well. Dayton Moore is our guest, the Royals president of baseball operations. He's joining us here on BK and Ferrario. Dayton, I know how much you love baseball. And so I have to imagine when you saw that Albert Pujols was going to be returning to St. Louis, just as a pure baseball fan, taking away anything that you have to do with the Royals or uh, being in a front office, that had to be a pretty cool baseball story for you. What was your reaction when you first saw that news? No, I thought it was awesome. I think it's it's, it's the absolute right thing, and and uh, I'm glad that uh, Albert's getting that opportunity. I'm glad that uh, the baseball fans of the Cardinals are getting that opportunity because it's a it's a special special feeling, and uh, of course Albert contributed to so much success uh, of the Cardinals. And uh, you know when you think of Albert Pujols, you think of him as a St. Louis Cardinal. So I think those are the types of things that that does make baseball special. And uh, you know I'm I'm happy for the fans who get a chance to continue to, to watch him play there uh, with the Cardinals. Dayton, when you look at what the Cardinals have been over the last really 20 plus years now, I, and I know our, our morning show host, Randy Carricker always brings up the stats since 2010, they've only played five games in the regular season uh, that didn't have any implications on the playoffs. And that's it. And any regular season game over the last basically 12 years now, is there anything about their approach as an organization that stands out to you? Well, I think they've got, first of all, they've, they've got great tradition. Um, the expectations there are, are so high and they should be, and they should be everywhere. And, uh, but I just think the tradition is so awesome and, and you, you've got to credit, uh, you know, the steadiness and the consistency of ownership to allow, you know, their organization to draft well, sign well, develop well. And, uh, and then when they transition players to the major leagues, they've always had, uh, uh, you know, veteran-type players there with strong credibility who have uh, accomplished a, a lot of uh, really impactful things in the game to help, you know, bring young players along. And uh, and they've, they've had the ability to go out and, 
and, and make moves, uh, whether they get Goldschmidt or Arenado and things of that nature. And you've got to have a farm system to do that. But you also have to have, you know, uh, an ownership that is willing to, to take on salary and, and so forth. And of course, markets are different um, uh, around our league, as we all know. Uh, but, uh, you know, I really got to you know, give, uh, you know, their, their ownership and their management. Uh, John Mazoliak is a, is a good friend. He's done a great job. Walt Jockety before that, I thought did an awesome job. Tony LaRussa, uh, really kind of, you know, set the, the standard there. I think for a long time, I just know, you know, when I was with the Braves and, and we'd go head to head with the Cardinals and, uh, you know, Tony had a, a presence and a stability. And of course that continues to, once you have those examples of greatness, uh, in your organization and, uh, you know, they pass down those lessons and, and they model that behavior, uh, and, and they share those experiences to the next group that's, that's on the way. And I just think that's, that's really impactful, but you got to credit, as I said, um, you know, the consistency of, of, of what they've done and you got to applaud that. Dayton, I'm really looking forward to this series between the Cardinals and Royals and mostly because, I mean, you got two teams that really put a high value on the defense first approach. The Cardinals have done it and the Royals are doing that with some of these infielders that we've seen uh, from a front office mindset. What goes into that decision? How much of that is, is attributed to the, the pitchers, the, the, the division that you're in, the ballparks that you're playing in? Yeah, I think that's that's a great question. Certainly, you know, our ballpark demands that um, you, you play good defense, and um, you know, we 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 pride ourselves on that. We draft players um, knowing that they need to become uh, potentially elite defenders, uh, especially in the outfield to be able to cover Kauffman Stadium. Uh, but uh, you know, we we need athletes, and we want athletes. And the other part of that. You know, you, you pay a little less for defense, and uh, you know we, we've got some limitations on what we can do. We don't make excuses for that. Uh, we don't make excuses for our market size or or payroll. Uh, that's that's not who we are. But we also know that we can perhaps tilt the field a little bit in our favor if we have elite defenders on the field. And so from day one, we sought out to 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 sign, develop as many Gold Glove caliber players as as we possibly can. And I think. To date, you know, maybe since 2011 or 2012, we've perhaps had as many or more Gold Glove winners than anybody in baseball. And so, uh, and, and you're right. I mean, that that helps your pitching. I mean, Adam Wainwright did not break into the major leagues as a top rotation starter. It took a little time. And as you know, we're trying to to break in, um, you know, young pitching. So hopefully someday they'll become elite starting pitchers. And and uh, but to do that you got to catch a ball and uh, allows them to, to stay on the field longer, pitch more innings, gain experience. Therefore they get a chance to learn to execute pitches and be efficient. And uh, you, you have that starts with defense and, and pitchers that uh, understand the importance of, of throwing strikes. And we feel that, you know, if, if our, our pitching staff uh, will pound the strike zone, throw strikes, uh, work quickly, it'll play into the strength of our team and give us a chance to, to continue to, you know, really to continue to get better, you know, through the course of the, the 2022 season. Dayton Moore, the Royals president of baseball operations is joining us here on BK and Ferrario. Uh, Dayton, one of the guys that I am so excited to see this week here in St. Louis is Bobby Witt Jr. He started the season with the big league club. He's already had uh, two or three huge moments in the first few games of the Royal season. Uh, when you have a player like Bobby Witt Jr. and you make the decision to let him start the regular season with your team, 
in the early portion of it, is it just about letting him go out there and play, knowing that, uh, yeah, there might be a few mistakes that come along the way. There might be a few outs that are given up, but you just want to see this young kid be able to go out there and make those mistakes early on? You do, because, you know, it's very difficult, if not impossible, in my opinion, to develop beyond the level of competition. So when Bobby Wood Jr. transitioning to the major leagues for the very first time, I mean, every night he's facing a pitcher that he's probably never seen before, one of the, the better pitchers that he's ever seen in his life, perhaps the very best pitcher that he's ever seen. And so, you know, he's going to have to go through, you know, some of the ups and downs. And, uh, you know, that's why it's so important to have great teammates around him, a coaching staff and a manager, Mike Matheny, who really understand the importance of believing in young players because they're going to need people to believe in them unconditionally if they're going to become the stars that we all dream for them to become. And so Bobby Wood Jr. is an incredible athlete. Uh, he has a legit fuck. Um, but it's just going to be a matter of just learning to meet the challenges of major league pitching. And it's going to, it's going to take a little bit of time. He's going to have great streaks where you think he's got a chance to be, you know, the, you know, the next Chipper Jones or Hank Aaron or what have you. And then there's going to be times where he's going to go through some struggles and people are going to doubt. And that's part of it. And, but you need them to go through that, that growth um, period so they can be hardened and, and chipped away and molded into, you know, the, the major league talents that you need them to be on a consistent basis. Final couple of questions that I've got for Dayton Moore here on 101 ESPN. Uh, Dayton, this obviously doesn't apply to Bobby Witt Jr., but when you have a player that maybe struggled the year before, and this applies to a lot of different guys around the league, but they went through a rough season in 2021, and now they're coming back, and you're hoping that there's a bounce back for them in 2022. What's that grace period look like for a front office when you're saying, okay, uh, we're going to give them a month, maybe six weeks. I don't know what the uh, what the time period is like to see if they've made the adjustment to be able to get themselves back on track. What's that grace period look like at the beginning of a baseball season for you? Well, I think it's different for every player. There's three things I've always looked at. You know, if a player's struggling, uh, one, is the player is the player staying committed? Is he continuing to work hard to try to make the necessary adjustments that the coaching staff's asking them to make? Two, uh, do this player's teammates believe in him? Or the teammates saying, well, why is this guy up here? We need to get this guy out of here. But does do, do his teammates believe in him? And thirdly, does the coaching staff and the manager believe in him? And if, if all three if all three of those areas, if, if it's a plus, then you stay with the player perhaps a little bit longer. Now, if there's another player that is on the horizon, that is an opportunity, um, sometimes as a front office, you, you just have you know, to make a decision and, and give somebody else a chance, but I've always felt that if the players continue to work hard and they're staying positive and they're optimistic and 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 they're trying to remain confident um, and they're making it trying to make adjustments and the coaching staff believes in them and the players' teammates believe in them, you stay with them uh, a little bit longer. And of course, uh, you know if the team's having success and you're winning games, uh, you know you, you had a little more grace period as well. Final thing for Dayton Moore. Dayton, I know a lot of Cardinals fans here still pay attention to uh, what Mike Matheny is up to these days as the manager of the Kansas City Royals. What would you say is the biggest difference uh, between Mike Matheny, the manager today, and who Mike Matheny was when you first brought him to Kansas City after he was let go here in St. Louis? Well, I've I've been a big fan of Mike Matheny's for a long, long time. I mean, way back when he was a player and 
and uh, certainly admired him as a manager and, and uh, who he is as a person and a father and a husband and actually a grandfather now. Um, but, uh, you know, all the thing I can tell you is, you know, our, our players love playing for Mike Matheny. He's extremely prepared. He cares deeply. Uh, he's a terrific competitor, one of the best competitors that, that I've been around. And uh, I can tell you right now, we wake up every single day as a baseball operations department uh, wanting to do our absolute best, yes, for our fans uh, and our ownership and, and our players, but also for Mike Matheny. And that's uh, we have so much respect for him. And, and uh, you know, he when he came in here as a special assistant, he got to know so many people in our organization, uh, our scouting director, our, our director of player development, uh, all of our front office, all of our minor league coaches and, and, and scouts and, and everybody to a man just really admires him and, and we want to win for it. He's Dade Moore, Royals president of baseball operations, a man that means a lot to me, as you guys know, as a Royals fan who grew up uh, in Kansas City, brought the first World Series championship that I got to see in my lifetime in 2015. Uh, Dayton, thank you so much for joining us here today. We wish you all the best this year with your team. Hopefully we'll talk with you again soon. Great. Love to. Thanks for having me on, guys. Thanks, Dayton. You got it. That's Dayton Moore joining us here on 101 ESPN. I was telling you guys this uh, before the show off air, but you're not going to find a better human being in baseball than Dayton Moore. Like we we've had all those conversations about who's going to be the the next commissioner of baseball after Rob Manfred if this doesn't get better, if the headphones didn't fix the relationship between the players those and bows usually and the take care side. of business. He's still uh, got 98 more gifts. Yeah, that's out. true. <laughs> I don't think Dayton Moore would ever take that job because I can't think of anything that would fit his personality less than that job, but man, if he wanted it, he would be great. For the game of baseball. Who would be better for it, him or Theo Epstein? Him. He, he would be Think better so? for it because he cares so damn much about uh, the game. The selfishly, I, I wish he would do it. Yeah, <laughs> he's he's an excellent, um, excellent baseball operations guy. We should guy. have asked him, like, if you were in Rob Manfred's shoes and you had to give a peace offering to players... <laughs> Would it be a set of Bose headphones? Yeah, that, that probably would be the first thing. I feel like, I feel like Dayton's thing. got something, other, something else up his sleeve. Um, I, that, that being said, like to get off of the royal side of this, I found it really interesting the way that he talked about um, the, the defense first side of things and how that's the cheaper route to go as a front office executive. Uh, that is smart for Kansas City. It is amazing to me how many similarities there are in the way that these two teams have built themselves. Now, obviously, the Cardinals are miles ahead right now of where the Royals are, and it's it's not close. Um, but the way that they build as a team is pretty darn similar, man. They both, if you heard his answer on the on the pitching side of things, hey, we want guys that are going to be able to throw strikes, that are going to let the guys behind them go to work. Like they have remarkably similar philosophies on what it takes to win baseball. It's games. interesting too because you know talking about getting defenders and how they're cheaper than going out there and getting after the big swingers. Like you're kind of seeing that on the pitching side with the Cardinals That's as well. Right. Like the contact pitchers are cheaper than the guys who are out there throwing heat and picking up strikeouts and. As much as we kind of poo-poo on it, that's been the Cardinals' mentality, at least the last couple of seasons. And going all the way back to Miles Michaelis, it's worked for him. Miles did a really good, I understand it's been bad the next couple of seasons, but that first year he was in the Cy Young conversation. You made the playoffs because you got guys who could just throw strikes, 
And now you're bringing in a Steven Matz who, because of the blister, probably would have gone better. But you got guys who are just hitting the strike zone and going for contact. And it's been the cheaper option than spending all of the money like the New York Mets. Speaking of the starters, we'll get into what we're expecting out of Jordan Hicks and Dakota Hudson coming up at the top of the hour. But next, we're getting into some NFL quick hitters, including a tinfoil Ferrario theory that apparently was very real. We'll get into that coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Comfort Service Tax Line. We'll get into some questions and answers here in about 10 minutes or so, but let's dive into some NFL quick hitters, Alex. So we are now almost two weeks away from the NFL draft, and of course, that means it's quarterback season, baby. It is time to start talking about which quarterbacks are going to go in the first round. There are three or four that are at least being rumored to be possibilities in the first. There was a tweet yesterday from a gentleman by the name of Ben Baldwin. He writes over at The Athletic said, if you have a second round grade on a quarterback, you are basically saying there is no chance of him amounting to anything in the NFL. Here were the guys that went in the second round of the draft over the last decade, Alex. Kyle Trask, Jalen Hurts, Drew Locke, Deshaun Kaiser, Christian Hackenberg. There was a two-year stretch or a one-year stretch, really. These guys both went in the same draft where it went well. Derek Carr, Jimmy Garoppolo Stunt. for the Raiders and the Patriots at the time. Geno Smith and Brock Osweiler. End of list quarterbacks taken in the second round over the last decade. Good God, that was like finding two pearls in a pile of just. And even those guys like Derek Carr, maybe I would put into a separate category because he's a legitimate franchise quarterback. Are we not going to even acknowledge his power and right through Jimmy Garoppolo? The 49ers decided, ah, there's such a glass ceiling here that we need to trade multiple first-round picks to be able to go get his replacement. And now they just felt like Trey Lance was a hell of a talent that you had to get. Maybe, but the rest of the league apparently doesn't value Jimmy Garoppolo all that much either because he still hasn't been traded. Maybe he's got an attitude problem. I don't think that's it. If you are looking at this year's quarterbacks in the draft... How does something like this, this list, and I understand these guys all went in the second round, but a lot of the guys this year in the draft, if you listen to anybody that actually breaks this thing down, all of them have second round grades. They're just getting pushed up because people need to draft a quarterback. What do you need in terms of a ceiling for your quarterback to be willing to draft them in the first round? How good do they need to be able to be? I guess it depends on the team. Like if if it's a team that's got a history of, inability to build a good team around it like you kind of have to go with superstar like the Jacksonville Jaguars can't go get a guy that they rate as a second round quarterback they got to get a Trevor Lawrence and hope that he changes the dynamic of that organization but if you're the 49ers can't you just take a stretch on a guy that's a second round talent and build the team around him they tried that and well they almost got there how did it go? Well, they almost won the Super Bowl. They ran into Tom Brady. No, they ran into Patrick Mahomes. No, it was Tom Brady. <laughs> um, I, I'm i not taking Kenny Pickett, Matt Corral, Sam Howell, Desmond Ritter, any of these guys in the first round. I would not do any it. of these quarterbacks in the first round. I Malik Willis, Malik Willis is the Willis, only one that I would be willing to do it, and it's because I think he's got a chance to be special. Mm-hmm. I think there's maybe a 10% chance that he gets there. Like the, the likelihood that he becomes what we're all talking about, which is – 
a thicker version, like a bigger, stronger version, uh, and a maybe slightly slower version of Lamar Jackson. That's what he is at his peak. There's like a 10% chance that he gets there, but I'm willing to bet on that. Meanwhile, if Kenny Pickett hits his ceiling, he's Jimmy Garoppolo-ish, something like that. If a guy like Desmond Ritter hits his ceiling, he's like the 16th best quarterback in the league, and you, I'm looking to replace him but if you right tell after me you that rookie deal. Derek Carr... You'd do that, wouldn't you? Like, if Kenny Pickett is a Derek That's Carr. That's interesting. Like, maybe Derek Carr's the ceiling there. If you could tell me that this guy's going to be the next Derek Carr, I would draft him late first round. That's probably what I would need you to be. If he has the, Derek Carr has had a season in which he was a legitimate MVP candidate until yeah. late in the year. If I'm a team drafting in the late first round, I'm not looking for a guy to come in and take over the quarterback and lead me to a Super Bowl. I'm looking for a guy who could do that for me but you got a little time to work at it. See, I, I'm i not drafting a guy that has a low ceiling anywhere in the first round. Because if he is, let's say I draft him in the late first. I'm going to give him a few years to see if it works out. And if the ceiling is low, I know what the end result's going to be before I even get there. But you're saying if you're Green Bay and you know Aaron well, Rodgers is going to be here for a very long time. They've already got their guy on the roster. But well, I, after watching Jordan Love last year, I don't know what they do anymore. But like you're telling me if you're Green Bay and you know that he's not going to be here in a couple of years and we don't know about Jordan Love and Kenny Pickett sitting there at 28. Malik Willis. I don't know if Malik Willis gets that low. He probably won't. But I, that's what I'm saying. Like he's the only guy that I would be interested in drafting there yeah. because the, these guys that have this low ceiling, I know what I'm going to do four years from now. I'm going to be looking to move on from them. It's the same thing that happened with Baker Mayfield in Cleveland. He didn't have a very high ceiling. Now, if I'm one of these teams, I would rather have Baker Mayfield. I would trade a second, third round pick for him before I would take any of these quarterbacks in this year's draft because their best case scenario is basically becoming what Baker Mayfield is right now. And I I just, if you're one of these teams, we saw it with the Rams, right? You have a low ceiling quarterback in Jared Goff. He can be fine. But the best case scenario for him was being like the 12th to 15th best guy in the league. What'd they do? They went out and found somebody that can be the fifth best quarterback in the league. What do the 49ers do? They had the 12th best quarterback in the league. They knew that wasn't going to be good enough, especially in today's game where you've got all of these superstars that are coming up right now. We've got to go find a guy that has that kind of ability. And it's the same thing in the AFC right now. If you're one of these teams, like the Patriots, for example, I think the ceiling for a guy like Mac Jones is the 15th best quarterback in the league. I don't think you can win anything meaningful with that guy when you have Josh Allen and all of these other superstar quarterbacks in your same league. I think you got to have something better. You know how you avoid this disappointment? You draft Trade all your draft picks for Jordan Davis. Oh. <laughs> Jordan Davis update, boys. 13th on the most recent mock draft. Where's that too? He's a Houston Texan, and I hate that. Oh, oh are you excited I, to be a Texans no, fan? I can't. I'm really hoping you that do they seem don't like a Davis Mills type fan. See, here's the problem though: if he's in that spot, if he goes to 12, Minnesota's taking him, and I really can't root for that awful team with Kirk Cousins. So yeah, I'm hoping overrated. maybe Baltimore gets him, or maybe he slots down to 17th to the Chargers. That's your Jordan Chargers Davis update. Makes a lot of sense. It's your Jordan Davis update for the week. I think the Ravens and the Chargers are your best case scenario. I'm just going more personally for a team that I can root for, yeah. so I don't have to be miserable like BK I'm, is rooting I'm, for Aaron Rodgers. I'm hoping it's uh, I'm hoping it's the Texans. If uh, it's the Texans, I'm gonna have to give up, man. The next bombshell of a story that I wanted to get to, guys. Did you see this? Ben Valin of the Boston Globe is reporting that Tom Brady would have gotten a quote 
position high in the Miami Dolphins front office, similar to the Derek Jeter job previously held within the Miami Marlins. That worked out well. And he was planning to go down there, potentially play for the Dolphins for a year or two. He would have paired with Sean Payton, who was going to take that job out in Miami as well to be their new head coach. And then the Brian Flores lawsuit hit and it changed everybody's plans. That lawsuit was filed the same day that Tom Brady announced his retirement and it stopped everything from taking place. Brian Flores knew what was up. No Tom Brady, no Sean Payton, not in not this year, at least. Yikes. Do you think there's a chance Tom Brady is the Miami Dolphins quarterback in 2023? He's a free agent after this upcoming season. I think so, especially if Tua has a bad year. Tua has a bad year and they have done all they've done in the offseason to feel like they can contend, especially getting Tyreek Hill from Kansas City Chiefs. Great deal. Great deal, by the the way. Chiefs. It's what I said. That's tremendous. That's what I said. Uh, I think Tom Brady goes there. One last shot. I mean, obviously, the guy's not retiring anytime soon. Giselle's told him, keep on playing, big boy. So, yeah, I could see that happening next year. I think I could see it happening, too. And honestly, it's not even based on whatever the heck Tua does. It's more based on what Tom looks like. I was about to say, I don't think it matters what Tua does. Tua could win an MVP and they would go, let's go with Tom Brady. Oh, yeah. Like, could he go there after what just happened in the offseason? That's where I think it does depend. I think it depends on what McDaniel does this year. What if Bruce Arians goes there in the offseason? Tom's like, yeah, I ain't going there. No no (laughs) chance that he ends up going there if if Bruce Arians is there. I think if McDaniel does a really good job this year and the players really like him and he uses tie in with Brady there with McDaniels, right? Another McDaniel. Oh, that okay. was Josh McDaniels. Oh, this is I'm Mike. sorry. This is the yeah. This is my guy. This is the BK, the, the one that I love. This is the guy who looks and sounds like BK. Correct. If he does well this season and he uses Tyreek Hill the way that he used Debo Samuel out in San Francisco, and it it looks like the prototype, I could see them keeping him. And then Tom Brady saying, "I think I want to be a part of this." That offense has playmakers all over, man. It looks a lot like the situation that he inherited early on in Tampa Bay. They'd they'd look great with Jordan Davis on the defensive line. I'm curious, how is Miami getting Tom, though, in this this other scenario? Because remember, give him money in the offseason. I I don't think Tampa was going to trade him. No, but he's a free agent after this year. He's talking about this year. I'm talking about this past offseason. Because remember, I'm guessing he retires for a year, takes a job in the front office, and then is their quarterback next year. What a weird (laughs) transition that was. I guarantee Tom Brady had pictures of Brett Favre up on his wall when he was growing up. Oh, for sure. That is a loaded statement. Coming up in 15 minutes, how are we judging the Cardinal starters in the first month of the season? But next, questions and answers. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe text now to 65780. It's BK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers. Let's start out with this one. Uh, Hey, guys, if you were putting together a Mount Rushmore for the Blues and it had to consist of two former players or current players, I guess you could go with, an executive slash owner and a coach, who would you put on to their Mount Rushmore? I'll start this one off, guys. Players are pretty simple. Colton Pareko and Logan Brown. He's the best defenseman in the National Hockey League. Amen. I hate you, Tanner. (laughs) (laughs) I hate you, Tanner. I guess the the Blues Twitter account was right. You did say that. Yeah, you did say it. (laughs) 
In all seriousness, who would you have on there? Well, Brett Hall obviously goes on there. Yeah. I, I Doug Armstrong goes on there without any question in terms of the executive. The tough part. You wouldn't consider Mike Keenan? <laughs> All right, now who's spitting hot takes on the radio? All right, I wish I had a sound <laughs> clip of something for him on that. <laughs> There's a BK buildup. No, I think the question, like for the coach, Joel Quenville is the one that comes to mind because he's the all-time wins leader. And him and Scotty Bowman, I think. No, but Quenville's got more wins than Bowman with the Blues. But he doesn't have the Stanley Cup. Craig Brewery's got the Stanley yeah. Cup. And I think by the end of Craig Brewery's tenure in St. Louis, he'll have the most wins as a head coach for the Blues. So I think he's going to go on there. The tough part's the other player because they've had so many great players that you can choose from. I mean, whether you want to go with Bernie Federko, Al McKinnis, Chris Pronger, Bobby Plager. I mean, that's the one for me that comes to mind because the Blues aren't the Blues without a Bobby Plager and his yep. brother Barkley Plager. So the, it, that that the second player would be a really tough call. You know what's funny? If Petro stayed here, he would have a chance oh, yeah. to be that guy. Yeah. I agree 100% with Which you. Which is kind of wild to think about. Like if you're if you're looking at who would have been that? Because number one is clearly Holly. Yeah. If you're looking at who's that second player, I think it really had the chance to be Petro. If Vladdy stays and then re-signs and finishes career as a St. Louis Blue, I think his name goes to the top of that list. Is there any chance that he passes for Durko, though, for Blues fans? I don't think so. We're... I don't think so either. Uh, I think it'd be really tough for him. I don't know where uh, he ranks and all of those. So games played, he's uh, th- he's not gonna be able to get the games played at 927 goals. I mean, he's not catching Brett Hall, but he might be able to catch Bernie for Fider- or Bernie Federko if he stays here long term. It's 110 more. Yeah, but you figure he's what 31, I mean, 32 that's four seasons of 30 plus goal production. Just it- depends on if he stays healthy or not. And then the assists. I mean, it's not going to be easy to catch Bernie Federko, nor will the point or no, I'm sorry. The point. Yeah, points are not going to be easy. You got 500 points. So, I mean, you could be talking about a guy who is right there with him. I think Bernie's the second player. I think it has to be Bernie because he's the Hall of Famer with the argument of, in my opinion, Bobby Plager. But yeah, Bernie, Bernie would be up there. So you would go Bernie, Hully, and then Ruby and Armstrong, Ruby Army. Yeah. I mean, it's tough, too, because like guys like Ron Caron, general managers at the time. I mean, they were impactful in bringing players to St. Louis. Is there consideration to Tom Stillman? I guess it depends on where you're going with executive. Yeah, when I think executive, I I'm think thinking like, general manager. But yeah. it, both. It, it can include this text, at least. They said include the ownership and Oh, well, yeah, then I think side. it's tied together. I think it's Tom Stillman and Doug Armstrong. But you only get one. Can't do like a, a two-headed yeah, Mount and, Rushmore. And, and I mean, hear me <laughs> out here. Like Tom Tom Stillman, that'd be a great Mount Rushmore. Like, to have two heads on one. It, Tom, Tom Stillman, I mean, the Blues are competitive because of Tom Stillman. Like Doug Armstrong talks about it all the time. Like they provide the money. Doug just does the work. But how many times have we seen teams owned by somebody that have all of the finances to throw at it, but you have a bad general manager who can't make the Definitely. moves? And that's where I think you have to go to Doug that, Armstrong with that's it. That's exactly why I would go with Doug Armstrong, because it ha- I'm glad to see that Tom Stillman's able to give them the money to go out and do the expenses. But we've seen bad general managers do that before, and they just can't build a good team with it. So that's why I would say Army, then I would agree with Less. You know, Bruby probably is the head coach, and then Holy and uh, Federico on there as well. Yeah, I think that I think that's the way I would it's go tough. as well. Uh, six five seven eight zero is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers. We'll get to a couple more of these um, before we get out of here. 
um, from the 314. Guys, what does next year's quarterback class look like in the NFL draft? Is it that difficult for a team like the Panthers, for example, to just draft a different need and then wait for a quarterback next year? Next year's class could be really good. So who's going to be in that? JT Daniels? Uh, CJ Stroud from Ohio State is going to be in next year's class. Bryce Young, I believe, will be eligible after next year from Alabama so as well. Um, there's a few guys that are at least viewed right now, and this can always change, of course, um, for next year's class. It could be interesting. I, I would pass if I'm the Panthers this year, unless they're able to get um, what's his face? Malik Willis. Yeah, he's the only one that I would take. I saw, up there. I saw a mock draft today that had Malik Willis going number two to Detroit. It's like, ooh, damn, that's I- high. It is. I don't know if he's that good. Uh, he's probably better than Goff. Still. Well, I'm, that's not what I meant. I it's mean, I don't upside. know if he's worth a second round or second overall pick. I don't think he is. I yeah. don't think any of these quarterbacks, honestly, if you give me my heart of hearts, like I don't think any of them are worthy of going in the first round. Yeah. But this is how it goes. If you want one, you've got to take them early. And so if I'm the Panthers, just as uh, that example, they have so little draft capital this year. I would trade down and just try to accumulate assets and then fill up other positions. And then next year have a good situation for that quarterback to yep. come into. I would trade for Baker Mayfield to fund them. That would be my plan. I'd trade good, for Jimmy G. I, Sam Darnold. I would probably take Mayfield. He probably fits better in a, what I would call a college system under Matt rule. So I, I would probably say the Mayfield one makes a little bit more sense, but see, I don't know if they're going to draft a quarterback because I don't know if they're Matt rules going to be there long-term. Like yeah. I'm wondering if too. they're waiting for the right quarterback and the right head coach they're to gonna, become available, whoever that is. They're going to give him the opportunity. You can go win with Sam Darnold. You did it early on last <laughs> year, Panthers and then they'll could, fire him, and then they'll go get the quarterback. Panthers could spend their pick on Jordan Davis. That is certainly something that they could do. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so. What the hell does that mean, man? We're talking to Jeremy Rutherford, Blues insider for The Athletic. But next, how are we judging the Cardinals starters over the first month of the season? It was a rough go over the weekend for both Steven Matz and Miles Michaelis. Is that similar in terms of length, though, to what we should expect from these guys over the next month or so? Might be. We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. weekend for the Cardinals starters not named Adam Wainwright Steven Matt struggled after he started developing that blister apparently that he we didn't know about until yesterday and then Miles Michaelis just from the very beginning clearly didn't have his best stuff he was able to fight through it the Cardinals were able to overcome that for the win but the question that I have for Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kiley it's BK and Ferrario and 101 ESPN what should we expect from these guys in the first month or so? Because Steven Matz last year was removed before the sixth inning, Alex, in 18 of his 29 starts. Ooh. Miles Michaelis has gone at least six innings once and the 10 starts that he has made since his return from surgery that he had in 2020. You look at Dakota Hudson today. He made what? One start last year in his return from Tommy John surgery. Good, though. He, he did look very good in that situation. Um, but we don't know what his innings limit potentially will look like this year, how long they're going to allow him to go. And then we know with Jordan Hicks, he's going to be coming out of the relief today. He's expected to throw about 40 pitches or so. So it's not like you're going to get a whole lot of length there either. For the first month, should we expect these guys, like in a best case scenario, five strong innings and it's the five and dive type of scenario? Yeah, I think it's kind of case by case because like you can't 
put a Miles Michaelis on the same level as an Adam Wainwright and expect Adam Wainwright numbers because Adam Wainwright, I think, is just a special case to where it's we're just going to let him go until he doesn't want to pitch anymore because that's that's where he's at in his career. And with Miles Michaelis, like we talk so much about having Dakota Hudson on an innings limit, and I don't think they put a limit on Miles Michaelis this season, but you have to think there's some limitations there with him for how long he's been out over the last couple of seasons. So for him, I mean, my expectations are just not to be given up six or seven runs in the first couple of innings. Like, I don't know if I've had that high of expectations. I know who was it that basically put the, well, he's looking like he was in 2019 on him. That may have been me. I, I I don't know if I have those expectations for him. Dakota Hudson, I've talked so much about how I think he's got number two potential, but obviously there's limitations on him. So I think the guy who I would have the most expectations for was Steven Matz because you signed him in the offseason to be a guy who can go out there and give you innings and pitch to contact. And after that first one, yes, there was the blister, but that was below my expectations for him. Yeah, I, I just expect in the first month it's going to be that pretty much everybody minus Wayno is going to be five innings at best case scenario. And the reason for that is, and I think we heard a lot of people say this around uh, Major League Baseball, is that a lot of executives view this, and I, I think some of the pitchers are going to view this, as this this first month is kind of an extended spring training. It was shortened. Guys had to kind of ramp up kind of quickly. Maybe they're not ready to go just quite yet. So it's going to be a buildup. I think by the time we get to May, you're going to have everybody built up, and then you're going to have to rely heavy on some of those guys like Matt's to become a five- to six-inning guy regularly, uh, Miles Michaelis the same way. And depending on what the plan is with Jordan Hicks moving forward, then it really puts more pressure on some of those top-end guys to really eat innings because – I think that by the time you get to the end of the uh, end of this month and we get into May, Dakota Hudson will be built up to where he's going to go six innings. Today, I don't have a lot of expectations for him. Today, I'm expecting, like, honestly, at best, three innings from him, and then they'll piggyback him with Jordan Hicks. So I, I think it's just relax for now. Let these pitchers kind of build up because I don't think they're ready to go at 100% just yet because of spring training. Some of your veteran guys that know their body a little bit better, like an Adam Wainwright, are going to build up a lot quicker in terms of being ready to go, him going six innings and being efficient in his first start than some of these other guys. The expanded rosters is huge right now. Them having the ability to carry Brooks, Verhagen, and Woodford as long guys on this ro- in this um, pitching staff right now is absolutely massive because those guys are going to have to carry some significant innings. And I would not be surprised if you start to see that churn quicker than expected. Right now, it's not necessary because you had the rain out yesterday, but they're about to start a process of, I can't remember what the exact number was, but a significant number of days in a row in which they're playing games. And that's going to, at some point, exhaust the current options that are coming out of your bullpen if they are going this route that you guys are talking about with five or fewer innings from most of the starters in the rotation for the first month of the season. Uh, you probably will see at some point this month, I'm, I'm guessing here, Aaron Brooks and or Jake Woodford going down to AAA in favor of other options that can come up and be those long arms for you. Like maybe on his start day, Connor Thomas comes up and gives you three or four innings coming out of the bullpen uh, as opposed to, for example, a Brooks coming up in that uh, or being available in that day after he had thrown the previous day. Something like that makes a lot of sense because right now you're not burning any of those options. The first month of the season, they've delayed that. So the five options that you get this year, that starts, I believe it's May 1st, if I'm not mistaken, or something like that. So this first month, this is where you can get a little more creative with the way that you're going to be approaching your pitching staff. I do agree with you guys, though. I think what the way that I'm judging non-Adam Wainwright starters for the Cardinals right now, can you get through five strong innings? Give me five innings of 
three earned runs or less. If you can do that right now, I feel pretty good about where you're at. Now, when we get into May and then certainly by June, I'm going to expect more out of these guys than that. But right now, given how weird the spring was, given how often how many of these guys are coming off of significant injuries, I can't expect a whole lot more. That does, in my opinion, though, bring back bring us back to Jordan Hicks, who we're going to see later on this this evening. What's the plan with him? I understand right now this makes a lot of sense. You've got him as a fifth starter. You've got the other options that we just talked about as being long relievers. So you're not really doing anything that's crazy early on in the season, given your 28-man roster. But you're probably not that far away from Jack Flaherty potentially being back. Let's say he gets back like mid-May, early June, something like that. Okay, well, he's going to enter the rotation. He'll take one of those spots. And I would think at that point in time, the guy that's most likely to leave the rotation is Jordan Hicks. So you've built him up to be this starter, quote unquote. And at that point, maybe he's getting to 60 ish pitches. You feel pretty good about that. But now you're going to throw him back into the bullpen where I'm at best using him in like the Jake Woodford role. And I don't know if that's the best use of him at that point in time. And if you do keep him in the rotation, who else do you pull out? And then long term, if you view him as a starter, well, what's that mean for Liberator? What's that mean for Oviedo? What's that mean for McGreevy and Thomas and potential free? Like, I'm just very curious what the plan is longer term than just this month with Jordan Hicks. Can I use the phrase, it all works itself out? You can, because that's probably okay. what they would tell you. That's usually but... what John Mazalak would probably tell us. But I, I mean, I'm curious by this as well, because in my opinion, some people will say, well, take Dakota Hudson out, make him a bullpen guy. I, I don't think, I think there's... I think there's legit number two rotation potential in this guy. Maybe number one potential from what we've seen in the past. Hudson? Yeah, I, I'm I'm probably going to die on that hill alone, but I just feel like it's there for him. I'm not I'm not coming up there. No, with that's you. fine. That's fine. I can, I could be up there myself. I like come up halfway. I've already created a hill away. for Colton Pareko, so I guess I'll stay on this Dakota Hudson one as I well. I do have the soundbite on that one. <laughs> I wish you would delete that, kind sir. Um, I, I think it comes down to longer term potential with him of. And I don't know how you get there, because if you put him in the bullpen, I feel like that takes a step backwards. But next season, you would imagine Adam Wainwright's probably going to call it a career. So that opens up a spot for Liberator, we thought. But is Liberator going to be ready? Like there's the there's the comp- internal competition. Sure. Johan Oviedo seems like he would be ready before Matthew Liberator. But we don't know if that to be the case. And then you got Jake Woodford in this conversation. And then Connor Thomas is the guy that T-Bone's been talking about. McGreevy won't be that far away at that point either. I feel like McGreevy's like three or four years away, though. He was a college pitcher, so he should be up within the next couple of years. For me, you're only going to have one, maybe two spots available within the next two years, depending on what happens with Jack Flaherty when he's a free agent. But I don't know how you get there with Jordan Hicks because like, you can't take a step backwards and put him in the bullpen after he's getting the the stretches to be a a rotation guy. But then on top of it, you're also looking at it saying what happens with all of these other guys in our rotation? Because I, I can miles Michaelis last an entire season. I'm not really sure with that one, nor do I think that with Dakota Hudson. Yeah. They're going to be in a tough spot when it, it does come back. To, and if Jordan Hicks is going to be continued to be stretched out as a starter, because to me, you're not using him properly if he's going to go to the bullpen and become a long relief guy when Jack Flaherty's back. And, and my expectation is Dakota Hudson's going to stay in the rotation. Now, if Hudson struggles, then, of course, then everything can change. Maybe he goes to the bullpen and Hicks stays in the rotation. But I don't want to see him go to that Jake Woodford role where it was last year, where it was, oh, he's the long relief guy, because you don't use a long relief pitcher that often anymore. And by the time we get into 
uh, May, June, July, I should not be using a long relief guy very often. It should be very spotty. And with his stuff, we've seen him. He's a clo- he, he has closer stuff. He can get the final outs for you. So maybe he becomes a guy that you stretch to where he goes the sixth and seventh. Maybe he takes that role. I said uh, yesterday when we were talking about the bullpen, I don't know if the Cardinals have anybody that's locked in as that seventh inning guy. They've got Cabrera as the eighth, and they've got Gallegos as the ninth. Maybe Hicks goes into that sixth, seventh, two inning middle relief role. But then I don't know. I don't know if you continue to keep him stretched out, and he becomes a spot six starter for you. I'll find it very interesting to see what the Cardinals' plan is for him once Jack Flaherty is back. And, and I think the way that they set things up because of that rain delay of them not keeping Jordan Hicks on that schedule so that Adam Wainwright pitches tomorrow tells you all you need to know. And there's not going to be a six man rotation. Oh no, no chance. Six five seven eight zero is your comfort service tax line. We'll get out on this from the three one four guys. It's crazy. How we're sitting in the moment complaining about not having enough starting pitching, but we always think a few months. Will we have too much starting pitching? I don't think you have too much starting pitching. It's just one specific guy that, there are so many questions about injuries with Jordan Hicks, and that's at least a significant piece as to why they're even having this experiment to begin with. I was reading Derek Gould's chat yesterday, and he said that the Cardinals previous were, previously were thinking about, hey, if he goes two innings, he's got to be off for two days then. If he goes three innings, it's going to be off for three days. And they were basically saying, like, if we're going to do this, why not just try him out as a starter? Doesn't that make more sense for them? Uh, clearly, they view the answer as being yes. Now, if you do put him back into the bullpen when when rosters do shrink again, you're back down to 26, and you've limited yourself by having him out there, and he's potentially going to be scratched for the next couple of days after he goes because you just want to keep him healthy through 162, it does limit some of that flexibility that you have at the back end of your pin in particular. Uh, having him on your team is a good thing and you figure it out. And that's the obvious answer. You said, is the, is it okay to just say this will work itself out? And the answer is yes. And that's, what's going to happen. I'm just really curious what this is going to look like a month from now. So I, I just, as we're starting to see tonight, the beginning of this project, I'm fascinated to see the end game. I think it's one of the more interesting storylines of the Cardinals in the early portion of the season. What does Jordan Hicks role look like a month from now when they do have him stretched out a bit and they do potentially have these guys coming back from injury with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. about 10 minutes from now. We're going to discuss a question that Randy Carricker asked to Tim Kirkshen earlier today. I want to get your thoughts on that. We'll do that coming up at 1230. Jeremy Rutherford joining us next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. It's time for the Rutherford Report on 101 ESPN. Anything you folks want to know about the fascinating world of pro hockey, here we go. Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kylie. Very happy to go out to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line as we do each and every Tuesday here on the show to be joined by Jeremy Rutherford, the Blues insider for The Athletic. He joins us here on BK and Ferrario. JR, we appreciate the time as always, man. How's Boston treating you? Pretty well, pretty well. Uh, great hotel here. The only thing is I can't believe it. I walked across the street to a place called Tavern Kitchen uh, last night and no chowder. I thought every... Every restaurant in the city had chowder, right? I was just going to ask you, Jared, have you got some clam chowder yet? <laughs> I was working on it. Maybe we'll have to find a place today, venture out after this the uh, one good, The one good thing I know is uh, you can get clam chowder to go and then just bring it to the hockey game and eat it in the uh, press box. <laughs> there you go. Hey, are you trying to give pro tips to a guy who's done this before? Yeah, that's, that's very true. <laughs> Sorry about that, JR. JR's been doing this for 20 years. JR during Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final was, was stacking those pockets filled with Ziploc bags. I know. <laughs> Yeah, that's the line I always get. Hey, get the chicken out of your pocket. That's stuff. You can't take that stuff. 
Careful, JR. Uh, all right, JR, I want to ask you about the news going into tonight's game. It looks like we're going to be able to see Tori Krug back in action. Where are you expecting him to fit into the lineup, though? Yeah, so we'll see. Uh, I think he's definitely going to play. Um, you know, uh, Craig Ruby didn't commit to it. He said that, you know, game time decision. But when Tory Krug was walking out of the locker room and headed to the bus, he said he was glad to be back. And Ryan O'Reilly and, and Robert Bortuzzo both spoke like uh, he would be back tonight, too. So Craig Ruby was asked, will he play with uh, Colton Preco? Will he play with Justin Falk, his regular partner? And he wouldn't commit to that either. Uh, still saying game time decision, but you look at yesterday's practice. He took some rushes with Colton Preco. Uh, I think there's a chance. I really do. Even though he's had a lot of chemistry with Justin Falk, uh, I think they move Nick Letty down with Justin Falk. And those guys five on five have been pretty good together on the ice for seven goals for, and just four against. So we all know what kind of chemistry Krug and Falk had. It'll be interesting to see if they switch things up tonight. If Krug is out there. Well, it would make sense to put Tory Krug with Colton Pareko, JR, because Pareko is probably the best defenseman in the National Hockey League right now. <laughs> yeah, you got burned, huh? I got, I got, <laughs> I got clickbaited by the Blues, JR. I got clickbaited by them on this one. But but in all in all seriousness, I, I mean, I, I I didn't say he was the best one in the def- in the National Hockey League, but I mean, since February 25th, he's been playing like a number one defenseman, hasn't he? He really has, and look, you're not going to change anybody's mind on whether he's a true number one, whether he's physical enough. You know, you're just not going to change anybody's mind, and I get that. I'm not doing Preco for the Norris Trophy, you know, in this conversation. I'm not doing that, but, you know, for the piece I did today at The Athletic, I did some number crunching, and I'll take it back even further than February 27th. I went back to February 10th, and I ranked all the defensemen in the National Hockey League in terms of minutes played. Preco was third with about 560-some-odd minutes, third in minutes since February 10th. He ranks number one in that entire list of five-on-five goals against, just 12 goals against since February 10th. And so you're talking minutes, you're talking five-on-five play, everything's even strength, everything's apple-to-apple. So, look, are you going to watch him and say that guy – is a Norris Trophy guy? No, you'd like to see more, and you hope that there'd be more there, but he's getting the job done. Look, that's the one thing you can't argue with is he's getting the job done. Well, and that's I guess, goes into the consideration for Craig Berube of what he does with these defensive pairings, Jair, because either way, you're going to have somebody who can move the puck quickly and efficiently out of the zone with Krug or Nick Letty, and I believe that benefits that top four defense because for the longest time, that was their biggest struggle, especially Colton Pareko. Yeah, and you thought you had enough guys who could get the puck out of the zone. You know, Pareko can do it himself. And then you have Justin Falk, who's just been phenomenal. Uh, Tori Krug in there. And now you got Nick Letty. I mean, you know, say what you want to say about, uh, you know, Nick Letty and maybe his better years are behind him, but he can still move the puck and skate very, very well. So that's the one thing that Craig Bruby always says, and he did say it today. Well, you got a puck mover with that guy. Well, you got a puck mover with that guy. So I think whatever way they go, Krug with uh, Pareko, and Letty Falk, vice versa, you know, I think they're in a good situation. And I'll add this, guys. Uh, you know, you're probably going to drop down Marco Scandella to that third pairing with Robert Bortuzzo. I've been a critic of Marco Scandella doing some number crunching on him last night. Uh, in his past five games, five games, he has not been on the ice for a 5-on-5 goal against, and he has not been on the, goal, on the ice for a 5-on-5 goal in eight of his last nine. So he's playing some pretty good hockey here. Maybe he's not... Well, I can say certainly he's not a top pair guy, but if you have him in that third pair with Truk 
uh, Krug and, and Letty ahead of him. You know, I think uh, he's another guy who, what we've seen lately, he can get the job done. Be, too. Care- be careful with that, Jr. Somebody's going to put a tweet out saying you think Scandella is the best defenseman in the National Hockey League, no, and just then you're the done team. for. Just on the team. Just on the team. He, he would okay. never say something yeah. so be ridiculous. Care- be careful. Somebody's going to do I, that. I, I swear, if Ryder does that on the 101 account, I'm going <laughs> to. Ryder, I'm going to do it so it takes some of the heat off of me. I was about to say, if, if you see a tweet about this interview, JR, it's me. It, it is on me, BK. So you, you know who to blame just, just for what it's worth. Uh, all right, JR, I did want to ask you about Robert Thomas because this is my guy. Uh, he's, an, he's a number one centerman. I've been saying this for, what, two months now, Alex? Best center in the National Hockey League, you I've said. I've been trying to tell everybody. Better than Connor McDavid, I heard. Wait for him. It's going to be a 20-goal score. I, I never once in my life thought that that was going to be the case. JR, what the hell has gotten into Robert Thomas, the goal scorer? Yeah, he's just really got some confidence right now. He he really does. And obviously he's had people, uh, your coaches, uh, preaching to him, shoot the puck, shoot the puck. He's just doing a lot more of it lately. But it's not just that. Like, we always focus on he needs to shoot more. He's putting himself in, himself in position where he can score a lot of different ways on plays. And that chemistry that he has with Tarasenko right now, you'd think it'd be the other way around. Thomas is setting up Tarasenko left and right. But it's it's honestly been the other way around with Tarasenko setting him up on a few here lately. So, you know, what, nine games he's had a point in, uh, you know, his points are, are piling up. I didn't think he'd be a 20-goal scorer this year. He's still got two more to get there, so we're not there yet. Uh, but he's just been absolutely phenomenal, definitely taking that next step, and in a way that we didn't envision it. Jared, speaking of the forward position, I know Tyler Bozak's not expected to play tonight, but does he make the most sense in terms of your fourth-line forward moving forward with Nathan Walker and and uh, Alexi Torpchenko? Or since the Blues, if they play Logan Brown tonight, are surpassing that threshold to where they give up that fourth-round pick, do they just let Logan Brown the rest of the season go? Yeah, we'll see how it goes. So Bozak won't be available tonight, Craig Bruby said, and McEachern did not make the trip with that upper body injury. So tonight it looks like it's going to occur. And Torpchenko on the wings with Logan Brown in the middle. Uh, you're right, Brown plays his 30th game. That was a condition in that trade, Sanford to Ottawa for Logan Brown. The Blues were going to receive a fourth-round conditional pick uh, from the Senators in that deal. But when Brown plays in his 30th, if he does tonight, that's off the table so the Blues won't get that fourth-round pick. You know, how does this look going down the stretch? Uh, you know, you could get Tyler Bozak back in a game or two, and perhaps he takes over for Brown in the middle. You could get McEachern back, who they really like. You know, again, doing some number crunching for that article yesterday. Uh, this fourth line has really given the Blues something, I think, the way it's constructed. Uh, the hits, Nathan Walker leads the team in hits per 60 in this uh, run that they've been on here recently. So you don't think of him as that type of guy? He's been providing that. So it'll be interesting to see what they do. I think Bozak gets back in the lineup when he's healthy and ready, and we'll see what happens with McEachern. Final thing for you, JR. I got to play you a bit of audio uh, because this was maybe one of my favorite moments at a press conference that we've had so far this year from the Blues. This was in a post-game presser. I want you to listen to this audio, and then I've got a question for you on the other side. Sometimes you forget that you can skate a little bit. Pardon me, Jim. You chirping me that I'm slow. <laughs> but you just you just zip you just zip by. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, yeah, uh, <laughs> st- stunned me with that. You chirping me. No, it's all right. <laughs> Jr. Have you ever been accused of chirping a player in a post game interview? Uh, I don't think in that setting, but uh, yeah, you know that was that was uh, that was funny. You know, Jim uh, asking Braden Shen about that uh, goal that he scored the other night was just phenomenal. And 
you know, I always give credit to, to Jim, uh, a mentor. You ask a question in a way that you know you're going to get a good response, and boy, did he get one there from uh, Braden Shen. It was pretty funny. So maybe I think I've probably been accused of chirping guys uh, maybe when they're by themselves in the locker room away from me. They're ripping me, but uh, never on stage like that. So good. Still the best quote. Pardon me, Jim? <laughs> you, you chirping me, there was so much. There was so, so much good. innocence from Braden there. Pardon me, Jim? <laughs> well, and you need the video, too. you got to see the expression on Chimp's yeah. face. It's pretty priceless. It was so good. JR, we appreciate the time as always, man. Enjoy yourself up in Boston. Enjoy Make sure you chowder. find enough chowder for yourself and for anybody else that may want it at the uh, press box as you're carrying it around up there. We appreciate the time, man. Enjoy it. All right. Thanks, boys. Take it easy. That's JR joining us here on 101 ESPN. Coming up in about 10 minutes or so, we're diving into the junk drawer. But next, I thought Randy Carriker asked a really good question earlier today to Tim Kirkchen. We'll tell you what that was and get your response to it next year on 101 ESPN. Pardon me, Jim. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. <laughs> Like they're ha- this has to be against the rules. It, you're stealing it from the show. They haven't even done one yet. That's too bad. Oh, you got some day games early on. Had a game get canceled yesterday. Thank God Jamie Woo-hoo! Rivers is in Boston. But Cardinals versus the Royals. This is ours. But BT could mess us up. It's time to play the lineup game. All right, let's do it. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. I feel like this is pretty easy off the top, right? Top you're gonna four, go one easy. To four? Carlson, Goldie, O'Neal, Arenado. I would agree with that statement. Hit it four times, T-Bone. You're like family feud. All right, now here, we got to do some, like, game planning first because this one's easy. I don't even have to go through the game plan with you. Five-hole hitter today with a lefty on the mound against the Royals. Albert Pujols, you're right. Albert Pujols. You're right. All right, now here, I don't think Yachty's in. I think this is easy. Next one up, we can get we can get DeYoung out of the way. He's batting six. I don't I, I don't think so, man. It, because if Yachty's going to be in there, oh yeah, maybe it would be. No, DeYoung. G- g- no. Give us DeYoung as the six-hole hitter. This one's this one's a clear cut. Lefty on the mound. He's I been don't hitting think the ball so. hard. He's definitely in. There. I don't think so. Mm. I, I, that's what I'm saying. So if Yachty's in, really? So if Yachty's in, Kisner's playing. You're not putting Kisner in the seventh spot where Yachty hits. You're probably dropping Kisner all the way down to the bottom. Yeah, We're but talking about that six. You even skipped a number. But that, no, what I'm saying is you got to go from, from bottom to top here. So if Kisner's hitting ninth, Bader's going to be hitting eighth. I don't even get what game you're playing. Who's batting sixth in your mind? Yeah. Who am I and missing? Weird, so, so, um, DeYoung is who you're missing. I guess they're DeYoung going Sosa. And I guess they're going Sosa batting sixth. You think Sosa's playing over Edmund? I, who's who's playing shortstop in your <laughs> Paul DeYoung? You haven't figured out shortstop yet. Paul DeYoung, but I think Tommy Edmund. sixth all, all year so, so far. Why would that change? Right, maybe we left? should have left this game to the Yeah, players. I was going to say, this is confusing as hell. So if it's not Paul DeYoung, okay, well, if you feel like it's Edmundo Sosa, then go with it there. I, well, I don't think he's batting sixth, though. I think you probably just move everybody up. I, I'm guessing you go Bader sixth in this. Or do you move, I think or do you move Tommy Edmund? Put a switch hitter up in the middle of Give that? Give us Sosa. Mm. Is it Kisner? No, they're not batting him six. I, I would, I would say it's Tommy Evans. You're going to put a switch hitter up there after your, uh, after your DH. It's Edmund. Tommy okay. Edmund sixth. So now Paul DeYoung's going to hit. I won't say the position. Second base. That's interesting. So now Paul DeYoung hits. 
Is that what we're going with Paul here DeYoung for seven? Struggled. Like, let's let's be honest here. He's struggled so far. I don't think he has. I don't think DeYoung is playing today. Paul DeYoung's going to be playing. We're They're going done. Paul DeYoung seventh here. Yeah. Oh, my God. Bader. So we're going with as a team. I like how you both are just guessing individually now. <laughs> There's no teamwork in Bader this. Bader seventh. So now you're going. So is it Paul DeYoung? Kisner eight. Kisner's ninth. Sosa eight. Paul DeYoung. Man, the first time we played this, this is rough. Paul DeYoung. Really? Man, they dropped him down to eight. What a weird lineup construction. Against a lefty? You flipped like four different things in this. Okay. So Paul DeYoung is going to be batting eighth for them. And then I guess it's Kisner batting ninth. Someone just said from the 980, Kisner's not going to bat ninth or eighth because they want fast guys in those spots before Carlson. (laughs) Well, Well, I hate to disappoint you, sir or madam, but Kisner's hitting ninth. Wow, uh, that's interesting. I will be curious to hear... The explanation, oh my God, are this. you going to question Ali Marmal four games into the no, season? No, I'm, I'm genuinely curious. Brandon, what, why against a? Uh, what did I guess it is a? It's a lefty on the mound. We've seen some success from Bader against lefties this year. And Edmund, yeah, makes sense. Um, what did Kisner? Right. What did Kisner? Did he hit a majority in the nine hole last year? Yeah, oh, when I, he's I don't eighth know. because yeah. of the pitcher. Oh yeah, okay, you're right there. So your lineup today, Dylan Carlson is leading off once again in right. Your typical uh, top five against lefties. Paul Goldschmidt is going to be playing first and batting second. Tyler O'Neill is hitting third in left. You've got Nolan Arnato batting cleanup once again at third base. Albert Pools is your designated hitter today, batting fifth. And the bottom of the order is where they've really switched things up. They've got Tommy Edmond, your switch hitter, at second base, batting sixth. Harrison Bader is going to be in center field, batting seventh. Paul DeYoung dropped down to the eight hole, playing shortstop. And Andrew Kisner getting the start behind the plates today as your catcher in batting ninth. That's really interesting. You have Bader and Edmund in front of DeYoung. Are you trying I, I to get more? It. Are you trying to get more speed on the base paths for Paul DeYoung? I'm guessing this is just them saying, "Hey, we like what Tommy Edmund has shown as a right-handed hitter so far this year. It, that's what he's been good at. He has really struggled as a lefty and left-handed hitter so far in the majors over the last couple of seasons. And Bader last year crushed left-handed pitching. They th- talked about him as a potential leadoff hitter. So it makes some sense. I just. Honestly, didn't really give consideration that Paul DeYoung would be the one that they would drop down in the lineup. It, it's an interesting construction. Um, all right. Earlier today, Alex, I thought it was really interesting what Randy Carricker asked. And I want to make this very clear. Randy asked this question. I did not. Randy. All I heard was BK asked the question. Asked Tim Kirkchin over the last decade, which team would you have rather been? The Royals, who went to two World Series, won one or the Cardinals, who have only been to one World Series in this decade, this does not include, of course, 2011, and did not win it. Which team would you have rather been over the last decade? Here's what Tim Kirkjian had to say about that. I think I'll take the Cardinals. And I'm not just saying that because I'm on St. Louis radio today, (laughs) because I think when you have a chance every year to make the playoffs, or you do make the playoffs, it's way more interesting than when you have a losing record and you've given up after, well, not given up, but you know you're not going to make it in May. Every year has been interesting for the Cardinals. Are we going to make the playoffs? Are we going to win the World Series? And let's face it, the Cardinals have won enough World Series in their history. If they never won before, of course you take the one World Series championship, but the Cardinals have won a million times. So I would take the Cardinals because you're always in it. I agree with him. I think that is the correct answer on this, despite the fact 
that the Cardinals do not have a World Series victory in this stretch, and the Royals do. And that may sound strange to some, and I understand that, but having meaningful baseball over this stretch of time, to me, is almost in a weird way, I I know how weird this sounds, more important than winning that one World Series in a stretch of a decade. The Royals lost more than 90 games three times in this stretch. They lost more than 85 games or were under 500 uh, as often as or more often rather than they ended up winning more than 81 games in a regular season. They have not been a good team for the vast majority of the last decade. They happen to have a three year stretch where they were a really good baseball team from 2013 to 2015 and they won a World Series in that stretch. But this is why, Alex, I've always said I don't think tanking works here in St. Louis. Going through this much bad baseball in a 10-year stretch, I don't think that would play in St. Louis. I would rather have had the Cardinals last decade than what the Royals had. I would agree with that. I would rather have meaningful baseball all the way up to the end of the season than know that I'm done by the All-Star break because then the two last two months of the season are miserable. And I mean, frankly, the whole season's miserable if you feel like it's going to be a bad team every year. You get the first month of excitement and anticipation, and then it starts going downhill from there. So I know a lot of people's response is, well, you take the World Series every day of the week. As a fan, I just want competition. Like, I want, I want to have meaningful action all season long. And from there, I'm good with it. So I would take the Cardinals every day. Yeah, I would take the Cardinals every day as well, just because they've been competitive more times than not compared to what the Kansas City Royals have. Look, that World Series is great, but if you get a tank together, I, it it's still great to have a World Series, but it's tougher to suffer through the beginning portions of that rather than being competitive, competitive, and then boom, you have a World Series. Now, I think it would be a more interesting question had the Royals not had, if, had they been competitive, say, six of those ten years. I think then it totally changes the conversation. Uh, yeah, I, I think the conversation then changes, but the fact of the matter is that they were competitive, what, twice, three times in that stretch? then I have to go with the Cardinals because they've been competitive over time. I get it. They haven't gotten the World Series, but they've been to the NLCS, what, twice? They've gotten to the World Series once. They weren't able to win it. So I I would have to say I would much rather have the Cardinals last 10 years than the Royals. I think the one that, like, to your point on that, I think that's where it gets interesting with the Giants as a comparison point. Cubs, but... They were competitive there even after they won the World Series, but the Giants is a good one, too. The difference with the Giants is that they were even like their bad years. They never they only had one year in which they lost more than 90 games, and that was in 2017. But they won two World Series instead of just the one, which I think adds to even a little extra. Um, They've gone to the playoffs two other years in this 10 year stretch. And even in their really bad, like it. It just wasn't at the same level as what the Royals have been. So I think that's one that I would take over the Cardinals, for example, the the Giants. But it would take that kind of a stretch of not quite as bad in terms of the down years and even a little bit more in terms of the successful seasons, having multiple World Series championships. I think that's what it would take uh, for me to give up what the Cardinals have been over the last decade. You would definitely give it up uh, for a team like the Dodgers, who's consistently been great and also ended up winning that one World Series. I don't think I would do it for the Royals. I I wouldn't give up what the Cardinals have been coming up in about 15 minutes or so. Justin Falk is making Doug Armstrong look like a very smart man right now. We'll take a look at what he's done over the last couple of years and maybe the unsung hero that he's been for the blues. We'll do that coming up at one o'clock. The junk drawer coming up next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The Junk Drawer with BK and Ferrario.
Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. Tanner, what do you have for us today in the junk drawer? Have you guys heard of, there's a term called memory tapestry. Have you guys heard of this term? It's basically essentially where you can recall something in your mind, but it's not necessarily partially true. So like you have the story in your head, but you don't. Part of the facts may not be what you've told in the past. And then as the story's evolved over time. Sure. So this is like when you're a witness to something. They say a lot of witnesses aren't actually like recalling what, what took place during the situation because of the trauma. Exactly. That happened to distort their memories. Exactly. Kind of like, kind of like my Colton Brago comments. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you, Boy, you I wonder how those are going to other people apparently. apparently. Yeah. I wonder how that's going to evolve over time. I've had a lot of trauma but, in the last 12 hours. <laughs> but so apparently... Me and my uncle may have like made up an imaginary person over time, and it's kind of weird. Wait, what? Did you, yeah. Is this? Did you commit a crime? Do we need to not no, talk no, about this on the no. air? It's it's fine, I think. Uh, but so also never I, a good start to the story. So my uncle, we were talking. I was in Chicago this past weekend for his surprise fiftieth birthday party, and we were talking with a bunch of his friends. And apparently, we're the only person that remembers this person. And so. He recalls working with her. Her name was Dana. We believe Dana Monday or it was Dana Brown. Not 100% certain. <laughs> yeah, because those are the or same things. Some guys, somebody told us we think it could have been a guy that was Dan A. Monday. We're not 100% certain on that. It's possible. Good uh, Lord. But so he, it might be a woman. It might be a man. Yeah, you're not drinking? totally sure. Yeah, well, there was yeah, alcohol. Okay, but, there we go. But, uh, but so he recalls working with her. And then when he, we were talking, he recalls bringing her to a family barbecue. And I can swear I remember meeting this Dana fill in the blank and but the more we talk about it none of his brothers remember this person ever coming to a family barbecue or ever remember him working with this person at i think the restaurant was called the viking if i'm not mistaken nobody recalls uh her coming to the family barbecue my brother his brothers uh my family and then his mom and dad who were hosting the barbecue and even some of his friends don't remember the person at all but me and my uncle completely remember this dana monday dana brown and now we can't we can't find her like he can't find her on facebook so either she's completely made up or we were the only two that actually remember her or it was actually maybe there was a dan a monday that's amazing. I think you have an imaginary friend, and you're just trying to like so, play this and, off and as you know, you know somebody. You know what my uncle says? We should start a documentary series trying to find this person. I mean, there's a million of these types say, yeah, of documentaries the out there, so you would so certainly we could do be it. in. Yeah. Uh, did, you, did you ever watch the documentary Don't Bleep with Cats? Yeah. That one... That one messed me up in my head as well. That feels kind of like this, but of course not murder related. Um, maybe. Well, I mean, mine's, who knows? Not mine's not murder related. Are we sure? It could be. Could, you never know. Maybe that's why she doesn't have a, a Facebook account. Oh. She wanted to get off, off Facebook, off Twitter to make sure that nobody found her. Does any text line, do you know a Dana Brown? Anybody know a Dana Brown that's that weird. could help me? 65780 is the air comfort service text line to get involved in the show. Speaking of having a little bit of a different view on things than what is reality. Guys, I saw this on the New York Post. According to a new survey that has been released, which interviewed over 1,000 U.S. rural and another 1,000 U.S. suburbanites, two-thirds of people believe they, quote, wouldn't have a problem growing their own produce if grocery stores nationwide closed down. Wait, what? People so, think they could grow their own produce if there's no more grocery stores. You could live off of the land, essentially. Gotcha. Okay. Like a farmer. You could be a farmer. I that would say roughly farmer. half of these people are either lying to themselves or have no idea what it would require 
to be able to actually live off of the land. I fit in both of those. Yeah, I, there's absolutely. My I, answer I, to this question would be a resounding no chance. I tried to do a vegetable garden last year and it, it just go? everything died. Everything and, died. And you got to have like the right soils. Like I'm yeah. at my old house back some home. Some people can do it. We had some the perfect, perfect uh, soil to grow tomatoes and stuff like that. And then when we moved to our new house, for some reason, it just would not grow. Yeah. So you just can't do Apparently, it. Apparently, eight out of every 10 Americans believe they have a, quote, green thumb and that they would be able to survive in such a situation. We, uh, speaking of your garden, last year well, when we moved my into our garden. Yeah. When we moved into our new house, a uh, wonderful neighbor across the street as a housewarming gift. Brought um, you the kids on the roof? <laughs> no, that, that was not part of the housewarming gift. <laughs> or they gift. stole your patio hey, furniture. Kid. One of the two. <laughs> uh, neighbor across the street from us, he's a really nice guy. Whenever we moved in, he brought us over a, a new pot with a bunch of herbs, right? So it had cilantro and we sure basil. And we're, we're pretty sure. Um, all different kinds of stuff in there. I'm not kidding, Alex. Two weeks later, it was it was basically all de- dead. Yeah. Like half of the stuff had no chance of living. And the other half that actually was still alive was like, should we use this? My Katie gets so frustrated because like she wants flowers and plants in our house. And I like refuse them in our house. I tell her, it's like, you can have them on outside. You can't have them inside. Oh, really? Why? Because it's like, it's breeding ground for gnats. Like if you have plants oh, and you right. have gnats or fruit flies. Gotta spray for that stuff, man. You should know that. No, I yeah. usually, usually tell people, I was like, well, if you have plants in your house, it's probably going to be, that's why you have gnats. So like she gets a flower or something from her dad or her sister and puts it on our windowsill in the kitchen. And then I take it outside. And she goes, what'd you do that for? I said, because there's freaking gnats everywhere. So she does, she, she can't have a green thumb because I disallow it in the house. <laughs> I was, I was shocked when I, when I moved to my apartment complex that, so I have like a small deck area. It's not very big. There are, there are like three or four different people that have green, like small little greenhouses put to cover up like half of their deck. Really? And I was shocked by that. I, I was mean, surprised to see people actually do that. I wish I wish I had a green thumb because I would love to grow peppers Absolutely. and tomatoes and oh, things yeah. like that in our backyard, but I suck at it and so I just give up. Kara's going to give it another shot this summer. So Will we'll see how it goes. I'll let you know. Backyard too? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll let you know how it goes with ours before we start okay. doing anything in your backyard. Yeah, because I need stuff. Coming up in 15 minutes, we'll play a game of better to forget it. 65780 is the air comfort service tax line. We got Danny Mack at 130. Coming up next though, Justin Falk is making Doug Armstrong look like a very smart man right now. We'll tell you why coming up here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Yeah, it's been good. I know that, um, you know, with Kruger out, um, you know, Letty came in and really did a good job for us and filled that void. Um, you know, he's with Perinkle for a bit. We found that he has some good chemistry with Falk, so he he stayed there. And uh, Scandy's done a real good job coming back um, since his injuries and stuff like that. He's played really well, and him and Perinkle look like they're doing, a, you know, they're back to the whenever we traded for Scandy. I can't remember when it was, but yeah. Justin Folk has quietly had a very good season for the Blues. I feel like every time we turn around, Alex, we're saying, hey, is this the best version of Justin Falk that we've seen since he's been a Blue? Well, now he's up to 13 goals on the season, had a couple over the weekend in one game. He is a plus 36 
this season in terms of his plus minus. And I know people sometimes look at that stat and they poke down at it, but man, that is a really impressive number for Justin Falk. And it shows you just how important he's been for what the blues have been trying to accomplish with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. We'll get to better to forget it coming up here in about 10 minutes or so. He's making Doug Armstrong look really smart. I know we've had this conversation a few times in the past, but I want to have it once again today because when I was looking last night, I was like, you know what, what is, Alex Petrangelo been doing with the Vegas Golden Knights and the answer is he's been really good for them once again he's been really good for them since he left here from St. Louis but if you just go one for one on what Falk's done here versus what Petrangelo has done out in Vegas it's either a scratch the two have basically been the same or you might give a slight tilt in favor of Justin Falk. They both have 20 goals over the last two years. Justin Falk has 65 points in 122 games. And you look at what Petrangelo's done. He has 63 points in 112 games. So Falk's been available a little more often. Falk is a plus 47 on the ice. Petrangelo's plus 23. And Falk is averaging about just under 24 minutes per game. Petro's averaging a little bit more than 24 minutes per game. They've been pretty similar other than that plus minus number and Justin Falk's averaging $2 million less on a per year basis while the salary cap is remaining flat. When we look back at this five years from now, Alex, I I was upset at the time. I'm not going to hide that. I thought they should have re-signed Alex Petrangelo long term. Are we going to look back on this and say that Doug Armstrong made the right call? I think so. I mean, I just I think there's two teams that are in different positions. Like Vegas was trying to get the star power and they wanted the star power on defense and they got Alex Petrangelo and the Blues said we're a team by committee, not a team by one individual player and they knew that they had pieces in place with Colton Pareko at the time you 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 felt like Vince Dunn was going to be there, but you also were able to trade for Justin Falk and try and keep Alex Petrangelo but we'll never know the answer to this unless Doug Armstrong spills the beans when he retires but this was the backup plan in case you lose Alex Petrangelo you have another guy who's going to bolster your defensive core And, and I really think it was a transitioning of the mindset with the Blues because they knew that they had a young Robert Thomas and Jordan Cairo they felt like they had the skills that was going to help continue to grow this offense You needed puck movers, and that's what Justin Falk was. I mean, Justin Falk's at a career high in terms of plus-minus right now. I think he's nine points away from a career high in points, and he's only four goals away from a career high in goals. Like The guy just continues to impress, and what's more impressive about him, we all know a lot of his success has come on the power play for this Blues team, but even strength is where I like to judge a lot of defensemen of how you play with that. And this season, these are the only defensemen that are better than him in terms of on-ice goals four at even strength. Victor Hedman, who's got one more than him. Roman Yossi, who's got two more than him. Devon Tays from the Colorado Avalanche, along with Kale McCarr and Mackenzie Weger from Florida. All of those guys that I just mentioned are number one defensemen. Justin Falk is performing like a number one defenseman for you when he's 30 years old. So it's hard to imagine this falling off as he's had back-to-back seasons where he's looked really good and just continued to improve. So this was another smart move by Doug Armstrong. The other thing is, if you look at the way that it works under the cap, and there was no way to foresee this necessarily, but uh, there would be a guy that's in that $2 million range that the Blues just wouldn't be able to afford right now. For example, uh, Nick Letty, if the Blues still had Alex Petrangelo, they probably couldn't have brought him in at that salary spot. And it also would have meant... One of Ivan Barbashev or 
uh, Oscar Sundquist before the season probably would have had to be removed from the equation or more likely they probably couldn't have gone out and acquired one of Bavel Buchnevich or Brandon Saad and you would have had to go to a more mid-tier type of a player and imagine if you removed one of those two from this current forwards group the depth of scoring would still be there. They would still have a good amount of that. But one of those lines just wouldn't be the same. They wouldn't have three lines that they're able to consistently roll out where they've got scoring threats from every angle on all three of them. There would be one where Alexei Torpchenko would have had to consistently been on that line all year long. And that it just changes the way that you're able to construct your roster. Yeah, well, and I mean, you're rely- you're you're a team that's relying on two lines to win rather than four lines to win. You don't have the depth of scoring on the third and fourth line. You'd be talking about your top two lines and then, well, they got to figure out. We'd be spending this season talking about what last season was, where, well, where else is the scoring going to come from if these guys aren't scoring goals? And that's been the luxury Doug Armstrong has always been about. We're not going to overpay for somebody. We're going to make sure that it fits into the team chemistry. That's why getting Colton Pareko at the $6.5 million was a steal. Justin Falk being paid that amount and Tory Krug. All three of those guys could get paid close to Alex Petrangelo money if they were free agents and decided to look elsewhere. But it's a group by committee, and that's where Doug Armstrong goes with that. And you'd probably be relying on like a Jake Neighbors right now to be a third-line Do you think still here if they would have re-signed? Alex Petrangelo, I wonder if that's the different. That's the move that they would have almost been forced to make is a panic trade where like, Vladdy wants out and that seven and a half million dollars is so significant to them against the cap now no, that I, they say, you know what, in our best interest to be able to go acquire a guy like Brandon Saad and Pavel Buchnevich because we feel like they are both proven and consistent scores, we probably need to trade Vladdy to open up a little bit more of that cap space. Maybe, but I feel like you're going to keep Vladdy with, without the understanding of the injuries that were intact with that. I think you're going to keep Vladdy because you know you have that star power at the top of your offense. But and think back to where we were with him before this season, not what we've seen now. We didn't have this knowledge what of what he if was going to be. take the injuries out, but with the injuries into it, I don't know if you could have moved him because seven and a half million dollars with all of the injuries intact nobody's gonna pay to to eat that salary it's gonna be like this what this offseason was where nobody wanted to make that deal because they didn't know what he was but that's what i'm talking about is it, it, it was clear they didn't get what they wanted for vladdy and they were coming from a position of power but where i still think they, they would have had to eat some of his salary in the offseason potentially but spot. i think they i think I, they would have been more likely to move him for whatever they could get and maybe i'm wrong here i very well could be because they wanted proven commodities in the lineup. And when you had, if you were able to retain Colton Pareko at that eight and a half million dollar salary. And at that point in time, you probably, I don't even know how they would have made it work on the blue line, but they, they would have, I think still had the, these same guys other than maybe potentially trading off Marco Scandella, for example. Um, but that would have been a big salary on your books right now that, changes the way you looked at Vladimir Tarasenko in the offseason. Yeah. Someone texted in and said Zach Sanford would still be here. I, I would imagine that's a, a tongue-in-cheek text, <laughs> but he's but he's right. Like Zach Sanford would be a cheap commodity playing on the third line for you. Yeah. You'd be you'd you'd have to be finding the the next tier down of players that you feel I like can contribute. You'd be relying a lot on Klim Costins and Torepchenkos and Nathan Walkers to be your third and fourth line players rather than having the depth of scoring like you have right now. And, and I just think that Vladdy still would have been here even if Pet- Petro was here because I think Army had the mentality even going into the season. Even if he was better. squeezed... 
that I'm not going to trade away a guy that has the potential to return back to form, yeah. and I'm not going to give him away just on the cheap. And that was his mindset this offseason. And yeah. at the time, I didn't think he was actually going to go through with that. I thought it had to be, I think we were all on the same page of, oh, he wants out, you got to get him out. And no, I think Arnie would have kept his foot down and still said, I want exactly what I'm looking for, or I am not going to move him, and I will figure it out. I think the hard part of hindsight with the Vladimir Tarasenko situation is we just we didn't realize what the offers were going to be for him. Like, I don't think, I think, I don't think anybody knew, but when we sat here and said, Oh, there's no way he's going to be back here. I think a lot of, I think we thought that well, somebody's going to make a deal for that. And I just you, thought they were going to get rid of him. Like I thought they were done. I thought he was but, done with them. I thought they were done with him. And I thought Armstrong was going to be a bad situation. Never gotten rid of something. He always gets something. In and return. it was just such a rare, like it, this was, a, was a one in, every decade type of a situation where a superstar talent is going through horrible injury luck, doesn't trust, apparently, according to him, the team doctors any longer, wants to be traded, demands a trade. There's the potential for that to be explosive within the locker room. So I just assumed, okay, we've seen how this goes. He's going to be moved. And and I didn't know what it was going to be able to get. We thought at the time they would probably have to eat some of that salary to be able to get something tangible as an asset and Army held strong, and he was absolutely correct in doing so. I wonder if it becomes more difficult to be able to stay firm on that with an Alex Petrangelo $8.5 million contract on the books as well. We'll never know the answer, yeah. but uh, I, to, to, I say all of that to say this. He was right. He was right. He was right. And, and I think that they would have figured it out with Petro, and he makes you better. Like Having that guy, he's always a legit number one defenseman that can eat 24-plus minutes per game. It just makes the rest of your team building so much more difficult. But you're but you're also playing right now with two guys who are playing like number one defensemen, and that's what the hope was with Justin Falk. Yeah. You expected Colton Pareko to get to that level, but you also expected Justin Falk, who was the number one defenseman with Carolina. You're playing like Vegas has that too. Like Shea Theodore is a number one defenseman. He's going to be Alex Petrangelo is a number one defenseman. But the difference is Alex Petrangelo is viewed as an elite number one defenseman. And Pareko and Falk are viewed as number one defensemen. And I would rather have two number one defensemen than an elite defenseman and then a step down from that. Danny Max joining us coming up here in about 15 minutes or so. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service tax line. Bet it or forget it is coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Vegas sets them up, and we're here to make the call. It's BK and Ferrario's Bet It or Forget It on 101 ESPN. Alex is very upset. Yeah. No more. You guys don't get it anymore. The Blues broke him. The, the Bl- St. Louis Blues the Twitter Blues, account. The Blues broke Alex Ferrario. They broke me, man. Alex didn't sleep last night. Not well. Yeah, that's true. I didn't. Now, I will say. You never responded to our texts in the group chat. None so of you them. So you were just us? Zero of them. I had, I had to take a step away from social media last night after a while. So the Blues official team account, if you missed this earlier today, tweeted out, Alex Ferrario explains why he thinks Colton Pareko is the best defenseman in the NHL on the latest episode of the Last Minute Blues podcast. By the way, you can check that out, 101ESPN.com, the free 101 ESPN app. It's all presented by iPromp. Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. Muscle memory there. My that apologies. Was, uh, fail. Boy, you just pulled a Ferrari on that one. <laughs> Alex never said that. Well, he's the best defenseman in the National Hockey League. That's fake. That's not real. <laughs> he didn't actually say that. It's not in the, that fake. specific order, it's at least. Very fake. 
So better or forget it. Colton Pareko is the top defenseman in the and NHL. It broke you. It broke you to see some of the here's, responses. Here's the real comment from Alex Ferrario. I think I grabbed this in the right spot. And see, that's what's fascinating. I would have said Pareko as well. If you look at the numbers from February 27th up until yeah, now. He said he's the number the one defenseman in the NHL on plus minus. That's, that's what he said. He doesn't want to hear it anymore. I know. He I'm, liked I'm the fake quote him better. He doesn't want <laughs> He doesn't want to hear it anymore. Alex, this is my life every day, man. Our text line is just a running stream of people giving me crap. We got to be okay with that. That's the job. We got to be okay with people taking these slings and arrows to us. We'll wear them proudly. You know what, man? It's, That's the gig, buddy. It's something, it's something we Not all have all to learn to deal. wear capes, my man. It's something, That's that, right. it's something that we all have to learn to live with. All right, let's get to some better to forget it. 65780 is your covered service text line. Better to forget it. Robert Thomas will score oh, score at least 30 goals in an, in a season during his NHL career. Damn. Whoa. In one season? Mm-hmm. It's getting to 20 this year. How many empty netters? <laughs> um... I'm going to forget this one. I think he's shooting the puck more, which is a great thing to see because, man, he is a dangerous player when he shoots. But I also think that Robert Thomas is a playmaker by heart. And when you talk about the players that he has on his line and team with the Kairos and the Buchnaviches and as of now, the Vladimir Tarasenko's and maybe next year, the Matthew Kachuk's, you're always going to be looking for that pass before you shoot. So I think he could get close, but I don't know if he hits 30. So I'm going to say I forget this. I'm going to forget this as well. I'm not sure he ever gets to 30. I think 20 to 25 will be his sweet spot in terms of what he hits when he hits the ceiling of his career. I don't know if he'll ever get to 30, so I'm going to forget this. I'm going to forget this as well. I think it gets 25 maybe at some point. Yeah, I could see 25. 30 seems pretty lofty, though. That's a really high bar to clear. So I'm going to say I'm forgetting this as well. Better to forget it. Tommy Edmond will end up at some point being a right-handed hitter only and will drop the switch hitting. And he kind of tried this too. Briefly Haven't last we seen year at some point. Yeah, I was going to say last year at some point he did this against a right-handed pitcher. I'm going to bet pitcher. this, by the way. I, I think he ends up being exclusively a right-handed hitter. He just, he has not had success thus far in his career as a left-handed hitter against right-handed pitching. So far, he has a 700 OPS, which is well below league average. Meanwhile, against against left-handed pitching as a right-handed batter, he is well above league average with an 875 OPS in his career. I think he at least explores it. I'm going to forget this. I don't think you go there. I mean, you got in, you got into the majors because of this, and I understand he's better on one side than the other, but I still think it's a weapon for him. So I'm going to forget this. I think I'll, I think I'll forget this too because Alex makes a good point. He got to the majors as a switch hitter. And I just don't know if you're going to switch him over to the right side. They may try it. I agree with that. I think they may give it a try again and maybe go with a longer stretch because he did it like randomly in like four three. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I think I'll forget this. I think he'll stick to switch hitting. And he may just be a guy that he's a switch hitter, but mostly will play against left-handed pitching. I think that's how it's going to go. Yeah, that might be what it ends up being is he's he's a guy that just exclusively goes like up against left-handed yeah. uh, pitching at some point in his career. Uh, 65780 is your cup for service text line for better to forget it. Better to forget it. Nolan Arenado wins or finishes in the top three of the MVP voting this year. Bet it. Giving me both stipulations there where he either wins it or finishes in top three. I'm going to bet this one. Guy, like, looks, guy looks on fire. Feels like a safe bet because he's playing really well. Uh-huh. So I, I would bet this again. He just looks like he's barreling up the ball a little bit better, not getting under it as much. So the only way he I'll doesn't is if Goldschmidt or O'Neill have an incredible season also and steals votes from him. 
I'd be pretty surprised at this point if he doesn't end up at least top five in MVP voting this year. I know this is top three, so I'll bet it. Nolan Arenado appears to have learned how to hit at Bush Stadium. And that yeah, was the biggest the issue for him last year, especially against the Pirates. We're going on a real big major league team, though. Oh, yeah. I think Nolan Arenado's in for a big year. Hot take here. I think he finished top three, so I'll bet this. Be careful with those. Better to forget Clip it. Nolan it. Gorman finishes the year with more at-bats as the Cardinals' designated hitter than Corey Dickerson does. I'm going to bet this one. Did you see he had two home runs on Sunday night? Yeah, he also has been very bad in just about every other at-bat so okay, far. Okay, well, what, who's been worse, Gorman or Yepes? Oh, You keep him out of your mouth. <laughs> he has not been. Keep Yepes's name out of your mouth. I'm going to say I'm going to bet this one because I I, I think Corey Dickerson's going to have to start getting stressed out about Nolan Gorman as the season moves along. Juan Yepes on the season for AAA in he five it, games. T-Bone, he said it, not me. Two hits in 19 at-bats to go along with 11 strikeouts and zero walks. Whoa. If you're looking for a guy that's most likely to come up it's earlier in the Memphis. season, if you if you end up needing a, a guy that can play Memphis. on the infield, it's Brendan Donovan. He's six for 16 to start out the year. He has a couple Gosh. of walks to go along with it, batting 375. Good, good for him. Brendan Donovan is the one that's actually started out the season hot. He's continued on with what he did so far or early on in spring. Actually, I wouldn't mind that. He was a T-Bone 3 member as well, but... I think I'm going to forget this. I, I think if Gorman's going to get his at-bats, it's going to be at second base. They seem to be gung-ho on him being the guy that's going to get these starts at second base. They want him to be playing in the infield, not so much DH, even though I know they started the year and he was starting at designated hitter. I think the last couple starts he's been at second base down in Memphis. So I'm going to forget this. If he's going to get more at-bats, it's going to be at second base than his DH. I'm with you guys. I'm I'm forgetting this as well. Or I'm with Tanner, rather. I'm, I'm forgetting this as well. I... Corey Dickerson obviously hasn't had the start to the season that he wanted, but it's been two games that he's played DH. I'm not, I know I mentioned the stat yesterday of what the Cardinals have had so far from their DH. It's been bad, but a lot of teams around the league have had a bad start from their designated hitters. I think Dickerson will eventually be fine. He was brought here for a reason. He's going to be your DH against most right-handed pitchers, along with potentially large new bar getting some opportunities there. I, I agree with you, Tanner. We just talked about how Tommy Edmond has really struggled as a lefty well there's an obvious platoon option there whether it be gorman or donovan one of those two maybe both at some point this year i think those guys get most of their opportunities at second base not as your designated hitter coming up in 15 minutes or so i looked it up there are only three teams in the nhl right now that are top 10 in goals for goals against power play and penalty kill we'll tell you where the blues rank in those categories and what it means for them as a contender this year in the BK and Ferrario rewind. But Danny Mac's going to join us coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs tire and auto centers on 101 ESPN. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. It was great to see our friend Danny Mack at the Cardinals game on Sunday. Unfortunately, the game didn't go as planned, but it was great to see him pregame as well. I got to see him in his element. Alex is over there catching up on the side with everybody, getting one-on-ones. It was a great thing to see. Dan joins us now via the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line. Dan, how you doing today, man? I'm doing great. I'll tell you what, that is the, uh, the, the part of the pandemic, and there's so many things we could talk about, obviously, that are more important than sports, but... In trying to do my job, uh, being down on the field, talking to players, and uh, being able to see the ball, kind of a prerequisite. But um, 
being down there and visiting with guys, it, it was great. So good to see you the other day and looking forward to tonight. Dan, what's the biggest difference of you and your element and BK and his element? Oh, it's vastly different. Hey, BK gets after it, man. I mean, he's right in the middle. He's letting it rip. He's got questions. He's holding people accountable. I got no problems with uh, BK. He was. He, I, I did have a problem, though. It was Uh-oh. one of the young players, and he, he actually said, hey, can I talk to you? The guy said, sure. He's very accommodating. And then BK like went in the dugout, and I just saw him giving a tongue lashing to this kid. Jeez. And I was like, wow, man. Probably, Save it for the hot takes on the radio. He's probably talking to him about how analytics are more important than the game feel. You know, Dan? It was Lars Newbar. I, I told him that he hadn't been playing very well this year. He said he hadn't well, played he had yet. Played. Yeah, <laughs> that, that would probably help your cause. Yeah, but true. anyway, you know. But BK was down there doing his thing. I loved it. Hey, Dan, I wanted to ask you about the lineup for today. You know how this is in St. Louis. We love our lineup game. And uh, they decided to switch it up a little bit, going up against a left-handed pitcher. You're going to see Albert Pujols in the lineup as expected in your number five hole. And one through five is as expected. But they decided to go Tommy Edmonds sixth, Harrison Bader seventh, DeYoung eighth, and then Kisner's getting the starts today at catcher. What do you make of them kind of switching things up with Edmond and Bader at 6-7 today? Uh, I don't look really that much into it. Now, I, I think that eventually, and this is kind of, we, we've talked about it when you and I were doing the show, I think Ollie's going to be more of a guy that does little things like this in terms of, for instance, I, I think we're going to see Bader against a lefty at the top of the lineup at some point. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if you saw a power hitter at the top of the lineup at some point, like what they did with Pittsburgh or Kyle Schwarber has done that as well. I just think we put so much into lineup construction. As long as your best hitters are getting plate appearances and the most you can squeeze out of them, I, I think that's the way you look at it. So get Goldie to second, uh, put Arenado third or fourth, O'Neill in there. I love O'Neill's sandwich between those two guys, the younger player between the two big threats, and that's where this lineup gets lengthened. So as long as those guys are near or at the top, I, I just don't read a lot into it. Dan, nobody will ever be Albert Pujols in his prime, but watching O'Neal, Goldschmidt, and Arenado in the first three games, does it give you a little bit of that MV3 vibes? Last September it did. Now let's see it over the course of a full season, and then I think we'd have a better understanding of that. I I think what you're going to have here, Alex, is that you're going to have times in which two or three are hot as it can be. And, yeah, you're going to say, man, this is MV3. This is Roland, Pujols, Edmonds. Um, but I, I think, though, when I've seen O'Neal, and, and at times Goldie, especially in the beginning of seasons here in St. Louis, they get streaky. Arenado is streaky, too. But when you get those three guys clicking, there, there really isn't a better three that you can ask for in baseball because they all can punish it and uh, and, and do damage. So, if they get those three going, I mean, it's it's going to be a long year for a lot of people and a lot of pitchers. I love seeing Carlson, what he's doing at the top. He's got a 10-game hitting streak dating back to last year going into the game tonight. He's been getting on base in front of those guys, and when he does, he scores. So really a key in lengthening this lineup outside of those three. Some keys will be an Albert Pujols 
DH combination and also in front in Dylan Carlson. So it'll be fun to see how it plays out. Danny Mack is our guest, Cardinals broadcaster on Valley Sports Midwest. You can also check out his work, Dan- Scoops with DannyMack.com. He's got a fantastic podcast that you can find over there. You can also find him. He tweets it out at TV on Twitter as well. Dan, I wanted to ask you about tonight's starter uh, and really both starters. I guess they're going to do a little bit of a piggyback situation here. Dakota Hudson getting the start for the first time this year, coming back from that Tommy John surgery. And then you've got Jordan Hicks, who's going to back him up uh, as they decide not to push him back to tomorrow. Wayno will get the start if they play it in tomorrow afternoon's game. What are you expecting out of those two in their first appearance this year? Well, first of all, I did talk to Jordan Hicks the other day, and this has been in the works since the end of last year to make him a starter. So it's not like something that, you know, Hey, we're going to, you know, catch this in the, in the wind and try to say, Hey, let's, let's do this. Um, this has been in the works since basically he was in the Arizona fall league at uh, the end of last year. And so I asked him if he's been training as a starter. He said, absolutely. It's not foreign to him. As you guys know, he's, he's made a bunch of starts in the minor league. So I, I like the idea of moving him to the rotation and this is by design to keep him healthy. So it's, it's may become a, a necessary thing depending on how other guys perform, but this was by design and it's something that he welcomes. And in terms of Hudson, the key will be, and I, I've, I've just felt this from the, the day that he got to St. Louis, he, he doesn't throw overly hard. As a matter of fact, I was doing some numbers in 2019 among the starting pitchers, his four seamer, 94 miles an hour, the average in a sub 200 average against him. The other four were Garrett Cole, Tyler Glass, now Mike Clevenger, Jack Flaherty, Dakota Hudson. So what it tells me is that his ball is moving when he throws that sinker and that two seamer. And the key will be throwing strikes because he led the national league in walks per nine at, at almost four and a half per nine. So that, that can't happen. And when you have his kind of stuff where the majority of the time, the ball is going to stay uh, on the ground or inside the ballpark and this kind of defense you got to throw strikes, and if he can do that, he'll he'll have a very good year. I mean, you've got, what, 26 to 30 gold gloves out there combined, so throw strikes and probably good things would happen for him. Dan, I know this is further down the road, and the cliche saying is, well, it always works itself out, but we were talking earlier today about Jordan Hicks. What do you think the plan is when Jack Flaherty's ready to come back and, and you have six guys for a five-man rotation? Things have a way of working themselves out, don't mm-hmm. they? Yep. And uh, I know we're getting way ahead of ourselves, and, and by no, I don't think Flaherty's anywhere near coming back. So I don't think you're going to have to worry about that problem for quite some time. And when I say that he's not near coming back, this is by design. I mean, this is uh, taking it really easy and throwing 60 feet, then 90 feet, and then you got to build back up. So if you start looking at it in baseball terms, it's going to take a little bit for him uh, to get back on the mound and, and be effective in a major league game. Now, my understanding is is that he may travel with us uh, on the road trip, so they'll keep a close eye on him and, and see how he feels. But, you know, Alex, I mean, it, it's I know that's cliche in saying it takes care of itself, but, man, so many times in baseball it really does. And so to sit there and, you know, speculate after three games, would somebody go to the rotation or do you piggyback at this point? I, I just don't know. Danny and Mac- really nobody does. Yeah. Danny Max, our guest here on 101 ESPN. Uh, Dan, it, it's only three games, as you just said. We've only seen one appearance from these guys, so we're not trying to make any sort of grand takeaways. But which pitcher has impressed you most based on their appearance in the first series of the season? It, it, among starters and relievers? Anybody? Yeah, you can throw anybody um, in there. L- let me say non-Wayno edition because obviously okay. he was outstanding. Always impressive. 
Yeah, that's I was going to go with him first. Uh, Ryan Helsley, uh, love what I'm seeing. I mean, you know he's a hard thrower. I mean, that's that's been his M.O. ever since he came up. He had triple digits in his Major League debut against Milwaukee. But his secondary pitch is a lot tighter. There's something going on. I'm going to try to find out what he's doing differently with it. But his slider, that little, you know, just it doesn't have a hump in it. And if you're trying to gear up for 100 and all of a sudden you get that, and it's still hard, believe me, but he's got a sharp break to it, and he looks nasty. So he's the guy that really has impressed me uh, coming out of that bullpen is just a guy that looks like you can count on. And I like Wickren. I, I like what I've seen out of him. And uh, But if you're asking me for the one guy that really is, is stood out, for me it's Ryan Helsley. And is he if he continues to go like this, then he develops into not only a guy that takes on inherited runners, he was one of the best ever in the history of the Cardinals last year statistically in uh, eliminating inherited runners and in all of baseball. But he's also a guy then that you get in in those high leverage situations and maybe start an inning clean to bridge the gap to the back end. So I felt a long time ago when I saw him in spring training that this is kind of a closer in the making type guy. Um, And maybe that's some of the the thought process now and watching him that if you get those high leverage spots in the seventh or the eighth, they turn it over to Ryan Helsley, but really, really impressive over the weekend. Dan, since we're on the topic of, of pitching, what have you made big picture in major league baseball so far to the start of the season with pitching? Because I mean, we've seen Milwaukee's guys get lit up. The Dodgers guys get lit up. Is this just a carryover from a shortened spring training for some of these starters? I think so. Um, I, I think you don't really see trends until, you know, probably a couple of times through a rotation, but certainly when everything's on the line and, these games mean something. It's the the approach of the hitters, and you're facing a lineup one through nine of major league hitters, not, you know, maybe four or five in a spring training game, and, and there's some minor league guys sprinkled in. Um, you know, the intensity is is ratcheted up, and, and so I think that you see better at bats being taken by the hitters, and at this point, they're probably ahead of the pitchers, um, and it looks to me that, that most organizations – I think it was the other day, guys, I think only five pitchers going into Sunday had thrown like more than six innings or five innings, something like that, Um, something crazy. So I think by design and with the expansion of the rosters that you need guys to get work, that they're being, uh, in particular, organizations are being very cautious with their pitchers with the short and spring training. Um, The other thing I'm seeing is a lot of hit batters. And it just seems like maybe it's the cold weather or the crackdown again on the sticky stuff. And if you watch the game tonight, you're going to see that the umpires do check again. That, that got brought in towards the end of spring training because they were starting to see a jump in spin rates that were not really what they should have been. And so they not only check if they feel they have to, the glove, the belt, the pants, uh, the hat, but what they do now is they go right to the hand of the pitcher. So if you're watching the game and you see the, the umpire go over, and it'll, it'll happen tonight at some point with the starters or relievers, they go and look at the fingertips of the pitchers. So they're trying to crack down on that, which tells me is maybe these balls are a little slick, especially with the cooler weather uh, throughout the country right now. Dan, uh, wanted to follow up on your your comment about Ryan Helsley, just kind of diving into the numbers, and I'm sure you've done this as well. I know you're always into this stuff, but his curveball, when you look at the break that it has horizontally, it's double yes. from where it was yep. a year ago, and it's like exactly. five times what it was when he made his debut back in 2019. That's really interesting. I mean, that's that's a game-changer potentially for him, so that'll be interesting yeah. to see what you hear from him if you talk with him. Oh, yeah, I'm going to try to get with him, and I, I, I think sometimes, guys, in the, the, the data will tell you 
and they really do. I mean, it's an it's incredible the deep dive you can take in with data. You know, for instance, the starter for the Royals uh, tonight was basically trying to get a better fastball, and he's worked on his secondary pitches, but spin rate, and so he's improved that. But also, the eye test will tell you. So when I was sitting there watching Helsley, and really it was in spring training when I noticed it this year, it's just the eye test of that's different. Something is different in a positive way where hitters are now not only having to gear up for the, the fastball, but, man, that that breaking pitch is filthy. And so, you know, guys will do that. I, I think the data is great for baseball. I know it bores some people and all that, but this is where the game is, and it is you know, something that can be used as a tool for these guys to figure out exactly where they're at. Hey, Dan, we loved having you back on the call once again so far this year. People can watch you over on Bally Sports Midwest. Check out your work over at scoopswithdannymac.com as well. Always love having you on the show each and every Tuesday as well. Enjoy the game tonight. I'll talk with you again soon, my man. All right, guys. Thanks for having me on. Look forward to next week. Same Absolutely. Dan. Same to you. That's Danny Mac joining us here on 101 ESPN. Man, it is a very small sample size. Alex, you know I love baseball savant, right? And one of the things that they do is they've got the percentiles of what you've done so far. And his numbers, like if you've got red circles, that means it's really good. Damn, they're all red. All of them are red. (laughs) One's maroon and one's nearly red. So 99th percentile means you are among the top in all of baseball. He is 99th percentile in basically everything so far this year. Again, it is a very, very small sample size. It's just something that is worth monitoring over the next month or so. If this sustains and what we're seeing from Ryan Helsley is real, all of the stuff that we've heard from Ali Marmol in terms of what he wants to do and getting creative with the bullpen, he's the guy that allows that to happen. Because now you feel a lot more comfortable going to Gio Gallegos in the middle innings or uh, deciding, hey, we need a ground ball here. TJ McFarlane, we're going to go to you in the fifth instead of in the sixth or the seventh. All that stuff just becomes much easier if you have a guy like Ryan Helsley that takes that next big time step for the Cardinals. Coming up next, we're hitting the BK and Ferrario Rewind here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. show be sure to check it out on the podcast page 101 espn.com the free 101 espn app it's all presented by dobbs tire and auto centers blues back in action tonight in boston a game that you will hear right here on 101 espn starting at six alex has your pregame coverage beginning at five alex to wrap a bow on today we heard earlier today from uh it was darren Penting who said why not the blues why why can't they be the team that ends up winning the stanley cup this year i looked it up earlier today because i was curious early on in the season we talked about how the blues were top 10 and goals four goals against power play and penalty kill they actually are still top 10 in all four of those respective categories they are one of only three teams that can claim that along with calgary and uh, carolina the blues right now fourth in the nhl in goals for four per game 10th in goals against per game third in power play and sixth in penalty kill if you look back at some of the stanley cup champions in recent years that's the kind of thing that you need to see on a resume to be able to to go on a run in the postseason Uh, For whatever reason, it doesn't feel like we talk about this team that way. When you look at the way we talk about them, it feels like they should be 20th in goals allowed per game, for example. 
But, man, they've had a hell of a stretch of late to be able to get back up into the top ten in all four of those respective categories. Yeah, I mean, they figured out how to play the brand that they need to play at the right time. And I always think that's very important. Like, some teams go the opposite way at this time of the year because fatigue sets in. They put a lot of effort into the middle of the season to try and grind through the dog days. And then they get to the tail end, and then they're thinking, okay, now what? So for me, the Blues flipped the switch already, and we've learned from years past that you can't flip the switch in the playoffs. Like you got to flip that switch in the regular season, and that's why I think Panger made such a great comment saying, why not the Blues? Because they figured out how to play offensively all season long by being so successful on the power play and at 5-on-5 five five and goals scored. The penalty kill has been great all season long. And your biggest deficiency has been defense and defense. You've really tightened things up. And then there's Vili Husso. So in all three categories, they figured it out. They flipped the switch, but now it's continuing to build off of it because you don't want to go in the other direction in the final two weeks of the regular season before you enter playoffs. A game point streak. Uh, longest of the season is on the line tonight in Boston. This next five game stretch going to be huge at Boston. Then you've got a game coming up against Minnesota at Nashville and home against Boston as well. We'll react to whatever happens tonight in this game between the Blues and the Bruins tomorrow at 11 a.m. The fast lane, though, is coming up next. You're on 101 ESPN. But, like, they've allowed le- lesser? Fewer. Less leaster? Fewer. Fewer? Leaster? Leaster. That's got to be a word, right? You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. A good story helps us understand the world and how to make it better. That idea drives what we do on the Daily News podcast, Post Reports. We bring you stories that empower people. You know this is a fraud, right? Why are you calling people doing this? And that hold powerful people accountable. Wait, you did what? We had to sue your office twice to get our hands on these documents. My name is Martine Powers. I co-host the show. Take the trusted reporting of The Washington Post wherever you go. Follow and listen to Post Reports.